Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Busky. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Chick Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Busky, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideology are impacting our everyday lives. This morning, I welcome back Karina Shields, our favourite auntie hey-hey to the show. We'll talk about her latest controversy and what really is happening in Māori politics. I then pop across the Tasman to chat to Ali Marie Diamond, survivor, advocate and founder of Wahini Toa Rising, a group to help assist those who need help or to escape from the sex trade, and why decriminalisation isn't the magic solution to an age-old problem. I then have a replay from Denise Ritchie for you. She introduced Ali and I and our conversation about her work with Stop Demand. The excerpt I'll play will give you a wider context of the enormity and hard realities of the sex trade in New Zealand. Marty will be back and joining me for Media Matters. And we'll talk about the week in politics, and then I'll finish things off with the woke news of the week. It's time now, though, to dive into the mailbag and catch up on some of your feedback. First from the text machine, enjoy all your informative shows. Great to hear Sue Gray, no ego there. Shame Liz can't get her head around working in. Listen to Counterspin interview with four of the smaller party leaders, Sue and Liz inclusive. Good luck with getting Liz to work in. We've popped the offers out to Liz. It's just a matter of getting things scheduled. So hopefully we will talk to Liz in the very near future. Uh, Again, from the text machine, regarding voting for smaller parties, if a party does not reach 5%, the votes will get divvied up between the bigger parties. People don't seem to know that or understand what it means. If your vote is well intended, it could potentially end up in the red or blue camp. Not what we want, I'm sure. Cam's got some really great speakers on how this works. Please, people, be careful with your vote. We all want to change, but the new freedom parties are unlikely to reach that threshold this election. In my opinion, main goal this election should be to get Labour gone, slows up the progress, possibly with New New Zealand first in there. Then the freedom parties better organise for the three years' time. 
there's some really interesting thoughts. This is on the Di Landev interview. Well said, Di. Walk on by. She's right. And what they walk by, do not question. They accept. We love Auntie. We love Di. Yes, we love Auntie Di. We love Di too. Uh, what an absolute lovely woman you're interviewing at the moment. This was Di. Uh, said that we can't get her into government. Thanks for having her on. Cheers, Ian. Awesome show with Dylandy Marie, humbling and down to earth. She speaks so much truth. I'm a better person for having experienced her wisdom. So much common sense from two awesome women. Hey, thank you so much for that. Oh, Marie, it was an utter joy to listen to Dylandy. She is why I love Māori, and I am disgusted with the Māori elite who are spreading the racist, exclusive, divisive poison through our beautiful New Zealand. Keep up the good work. Love RCR. Cheers, Mary. Great guests read trans regret this morning. Once doctors do the surgery, they have you as a patient for life, Keith. Gosh, there's heaps this morning. Dear Marie, I really love Di. Our Māori are under so much attack, as we all have been from the tentacles every which wear. I'm a skinny white girl brought up in the roughest part of town, always wanted to fit in with a strong Māoridom, and I relate to the deep level of being from Scottish heritage being starved and forced out of our ancestral lands and understood the past sufferings as it affected our families in many ways, causing poverty, emotional, mental issues, abuses within families, etc. I've often had racial expressions and vibes expressed towards myself, which knocked my confidence from young. I've noticed that racism views is seen by many, but has only seemed to have happened towards Māori. I think every race can suffer in many different environments or situations. I remember being so tearful and raging about the sick targeting of our beautiful Māori and the bribes that they got to get the jab. I was so bloody angry. Division of people needs to stop. It's like they're trying to fool Māori with false special treatments, priority medical care, etc., to love them in something sinister. I'm worried for Māori genetics and all of us who fall out of this treasonous agendas. Yeah, it is such a concern, such a concern. Hi, Marie. Did Bill Gates not say that vaccinations will decrease the population by 15%? I can't confirm that. I, um, I'm uncertain. I had a blackout last week. My company will not let me drive now. I've spent six days in hospital ED and city doctor's medical clinic to try and get the all clear. Not only will they not give me the all clear, they can't find any abnormalities. I've watched these doctors and nurses and all they do is shuffle paper and reports left and right. No actual consultation. Cheers, Nick. Spain supporter, Manawatu hero. Well, I hope you get things sorted, Nick. I really do. Hi, Marie and Marty. Listening to Media Matters and the health topic might be worth listening to Leighton Smith's latest podcast with Des Gorman around his views on the current state of the health system in New Zealand. Leighton is an excellent broadcaster, as you know, who broadcasts on MSM and shares our views. Keep up the good work, you too, Shelley. I am a huge fan of Leighton Smith. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I save all my favourite Leightons and all my favourite RCRs for when I'm driving around in the car. So I've already got that downloaded and lined up to listen to. Hi Marie, thank you for having Dialandy on again. She's such a breath of fresh air and she does my heart good. She does my heart good too. I could listen to her all day. She speaks so much sense and truth. One last one actually that just came in. Aotearoa Farmers Everything, thank you so much. Well, speaking of, we're going to head on back down to the farm in a moment. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. And it appears there's a brewing fracas on the farm. 
As the days tick down before the upcoming election, the farm appears to be becoming more fractious. Squealer Robinson, faced by the stark truth that the feed stores are in dire straits, and try as he might in hiding the situation with clever accounting and doublespeak, the empty silo still haunts him. In a last-ditch attempt to convince the animals all was good in his hood, he boldly announced significant amounts of feed will be saved on farmyard projects over the next four years. What our bespectacled porcine sign failed to provide was that ever-important context, that the savings were just a very small drop in the feed silo, just a fraction of 1%. But boy, did it sound good when he told the sheep and his most loyal supporters clacked their trotters and snorted obediently in support. Speaking of clacking trotters, we Chippy Pork finally hit the campaign trail about the farm. He started in all the safest places, traditionally guaranteed to provide the best reports for the flock of sheep that now follow him wherever he goes. Starting at a local market where Napoleon was revered, our chippy set off with high spirits. These were soon dashed. Chickens! Those bloody chickens! Chippy quietly seethed. They were everywhere. Not in the back paddocks, as first thought, but they've now coalesced in town and they were loud. Clucking and crowing, asking questions, chanting truths that Chippy had thought Napoleon had well and truly buried. It was so loud, he couldn't even eat his favourite pork on pork snack, provided by a loyalist in a discreet paper bag. No pastry crumbs to be seen here today. It's not just Chippy who has avian issues. Oinky Lux has fallen foul of the feathered flock. More questions were asked of Chippy's main contender, which saw our Oinky dash off in a huff, leaving nothing but the shining reflection of his bald head behind. Well, 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 it appears the chickens have entered the political race. Someone well-versed in the feathered frustrations of those banished to the back panics is Winnie Ben. He's been courting the favour of the flocks for months, promising he is their best hope for representation in the farmyard. He assured them no deals would be done with Chippy, even though Chippy seemed to forget this, boldly stating he wouldn't cut a deal with our Winnie. Deaf or dumb? No one was quite sure. Regardless, the blight of the chickens is now starting to ruffle feathers all over the farm. Their banishment allowed many to form small parties of their own, and as our chippy and oinky discovered, they are loud, and despite all best efforts, they're not going away. Davy Piglet isn't immune to the shenanigans of campaigning either. His quiet comments about having a proclivity to pyrotechnics got him in hot water with many of the sheep, and to add insult to injury, it was discovered that he had chicken sympathisers in his midst. This sent our pint-sized porcine into a rage. His carefully cultivated chicken chastisements were boldly on record, and he was not going to be derailed now. Not when he is so close to the inner sanctum of power in the farmhouse. With much of the farm feeling edgy, all the pigs hoped a good game of bovie ball would settle everyone's nerves. The black bulls were up against the African Angus, their last game before the bovie ball World Cup, 
A win in the cup would bode well for Chippy. But alas, the Africans were rampant and the black bulls started to reflect our Chippy's mood. Dark. Now, where did he put that sausage roll again? Make sure you tune in next week for the next episode of Aotearoa Farm, exclusively here on Counterculture with RCR. You are with Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture here with Marie, and it's with great pleasure I welcome back the sparky auntie hey, hey, herself, Karina Shields. How are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you doing, Marie? I'm doing very, very well, and you've been... Uh, You've been sparking up a little bit of controversy since we spoke last. Just a little. No. Mm, We've got to so keep walk us through, Yeah, so walk us through what you've been up to. So there was the whole Spark episode where they unnecessarily got involved with Chanel's thread. And so there was a little bit of a backlash that didn't make it to mainstream media. Um, the Herald did report on it that there was online stuff. And so I sent them a letter to the reporter that had done the story, and I challenged her to write the uh, publish the letter that I wrote in response to everything that had happened. Crickets. Mm. So just to and, back people up with what went on, Chanel Lal, who is yep. a trans radical activist, yes. put out a thread on the new Facebook Threads app encouraging yep. Spark not to continue their identitarian, well, really threatening them, wasn't it? It was kind of like, if you don't do this. Yeah, well, it was more like, let's keep turfs off threats. Mm. And Spark jumped in and said that they agreed. Now, there was no call for Spark to get involved. They just chose to, someone in their social media team, chose to add their two cents where it wasn't asked for. Mm. And so it was a it was a slap in the face to a lot of women, mm. and Sparks' statement that they issued a couple of days later was a lot of gaslighting and not wanting to listen to the other side about what the real issue was, and so they have just shut down. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, the mainstream media and the legacy media they just weren't interested, really. No, but on social media. Yeah. Things definitely did spark up. Yeah, they most definitely did. And Spark just went to ground. And I backed off for a couple of weeks because I was doing writing for Plain Sight and I had to back off and just, okay, what do I do next? And I decided to use Chanel and use Spark to try and get conversations going. And so it's, Something that I have been saying on social media a lot is that people don't know how to start conversations with others. And so I come up with a T-shirt idea. A spark can start a flame. And it is a play on what happened with Chanel and Spark. But it is a visual that people can use to start a conversation with somebody else around whatever it is that's going on in the world whether it is COVID, whether it is the trans identity issues, it is a political visual statement to try and get people talking because parents need to be aware of what is happening in the education system. That sounds like a brilliant idea. But of course, the difficulty is, is that there is a certain 
element and party that don't want these conversations to be had. They'd much rather tell people things yeah. than converse with them. Are you getting that sense when you're trying to actually engage in dialogue? Yeah, absolutely. There are no parties really amongst the ones that are in there at the moment that want to have a conversation around any of this. And so for me, it is about trying to reach the voters because they're the ones that matter. In October, we have an election. People have a chance to, you know, put their vote with someone that aligns with them. And if I can get these conversations started and going around what the left are ignoring and what Chris Luxon is ignoring as well, you know, he, this whole gender bathrooms thing, he doesn't want anything to do with it either. And so if these people aren't going to listen, it's about going back to the voters and getting them to have the conversations because they're the ones that matter at the end of the day. Well, it is. And last time we spoke, you were doing a lot of work in the Māori space encouraging Māori off the Māori role now that they had the ability, they've got, you know, got the ability to, to move around more freely. And what intrigued me was that I did a quick look at what the numbers that did move around. And of course, there were news stories claiming this this wonderful, um, oh, net gains on the Māori role, this is really incredible. But when you actually dived into the numbers, the numbers are minuscule. So the largest movement was in Tamaki Makaro, which is kind of, you know, I mean, Auckland, it makes sense. But each seat is around anywhere between sort of 30 to 38,000, I think is the size of the ele- each electorate. So there was only, in Tamaki Makaro, only a net gain of 484, and that was the largest. The smallest was Te Tai Hauru, that was 210 net gain. But most of these net gains, when you dig a little deeper, were in younger people. So they've come in from that sort of under 40, whereas yeah. more senior voters, they were the ones that jumped ship. They wanted some choice. Yeah, and that's what I am finding too is it is a lot the older ones, especially with my audience on TikTok. TikTok is a lot of a lot more mouldy than any other platform. And so I'm finding that there are a lot more mouldy that are like, no, I am off. I am out of the mouldy role because there isn't enough choice for me. I want more than just left leaning parties. And we can't we can't get that on on the mouldy role. And so there are some younger ones I'm finding too, though, who are starting to ask more questions. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about, you know, all sorts of things? And so we do have a lot of political conversations on TikTok, which I think is really, really good for Māori because we need to open our eyes to the things that have gone on in government and realise that just because somebody is Māori doesn't mean they have our best interests at heart or that they are the best person for the job. Mm. And of course, for a lot of these younger ones, they don't have uh, the opportunity to spend time on marae that but that was that forum where those questions were asked and those conversations were had. So in a way, TikTok's kind of like a digital marae, isn't it? It is. It is. There are a lot of conversations that happen on TikTok. Um, there, there is lots of learning to be done on TikTok as well. Yes, there is that toxic element and you're always going to have 
the radicals that will come at you for expressing a different opinion. But you can actually learn a lot about politics and multiculture from following the right people. Mm. When it comes to those conversations, what are some of the questions that the, particularly the younger voters, younger Māori voters, what are some of the questions they're asking? What is sparking their interest? Auntie, why don't you like to party Māori? Wow. What have they done? Or why don't you like certain parties? How do you feel about certain policies? How do you feel about co-governance? So, yeah, they do ask some really good questions, some of them. and. A lot of people have come back and said, both young and old, I didn't realise this was happening. Thank you for letting me know. I will be more careful with sending my moko into public toilets. I am going to be more careful watching over my child's education and the curriculum and what's being taught. I am more aware of the Natural Therapeutics Bill, for example. So. Yeah, and so that has been a big thing for me too with Te Party Māori is how can you support a party that was promoting jabs but this year seems to be all about rongoa Māori. Where was their promotion of rongoa Māori two years ago? Mm, well, exactly. I heard Rawiri say recently they were talking about sort of this left-right thing. I think it was uh, after Winston first had his first solid poll result saying he could be back. Yeah. And Rawiri sort of brushed off the question, said, we're not left, we're not right, we're straight up the guts. Delusional or gaslighting? Both. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely both. They are so far out of touch with what is actually happening that it's unbelievable. No, with Waipareta being investigated numerous times for their breaches with Te Pāti Māori, it is complete delusion and absolute gaslighting on their part. They they don't see that what they are doing is wrong. They don't see that the money that they are using to bribe people is wrong, and they're trying to convince everybody else that they are the problem. Mm, yeah, and then you've got Willie Jackson turning around and having a very select meetings with media to instruct them on how, um, what and how to report on the treaty. Mm, yeah. sort of, it's sort of, well, my mind you, it worked so well with COVID. Why, yeah. couldn't, why couldn't we do that with the treaty, I guess? Yeah, exactly. I did a Privacy Act request with Waipareta after finding about, out about John Tamahiri going to court for the details of unvaccinated Māori. And they said, do you want to come and pick it up? Or do you want us to send it? I said, no, I'm coming to pick it up. There's Yoni down the road from me. So I went in to pick it up. They had somebody waiting at the bottom for me who escorted me upstairs to pick up my Privacy Act request and escorted me back out because they didn't want me talking to anybody. I was just like, wow. And I got talking a couple of weeks after I picked it up to an ex-employee of Waipareta's, and I said, no, this is what happened. They're like, they did that because they didn't want you saying anything. They did not want you talking at all to anybody. Yeah. What are you so afraid of? 
If they've got yeah. nothing to hide, what are they so exactly. afraid of? Exactly. So in terms of the Māori electorates, I mean, Rawari, I think he, he believes he's fairly comfortable keeping his seat. But the rest of them, I think, are still very, very much up for grabs. Now, you said to me before we got started, you were in uh, Titai Tokorau. That's where you were yep. enrolled. I was point. enrolled on the Māori roll, and that was my electorate, was Titai Tokorau. Mm. And I came off because there were only four options. Labour, Party Māori, Greens, and legalised cannabis. That wasn't enough choice for me. So I came off. And I since then put out a TikTok and a, well, an X now, now that it's not Twitter. Um, I put out posts and told people, in Northland, if you are still on Te Tai roll, vote for legalised cannabis. What have you got to lose by trying something different? Because, yeah, I mean, like, ultimately, if you've got four, four candidates on the bill, which are left, left, really left, and stoned. Yeah. And to be fair, and let's face it, I mean, maybe legalise marijuana. I mean, really, they're the true Green Party up there, aren't they? Yeah. Just yeah. saying. I mean, the Greens have gone very red these days. Absolutely. They're watermelon these days. Watermelon. Oh, I like it. I like it. Green on the yep. outside and red on the inside. Yes, yeah. very much so. There's a, that's another T-shirt for you. Yeah. You know, yeah. There, there are a few lined up. So the, the T-shirts do play into my sarcastic side. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for those and I will you know, keep everybody updated with those. But we are set to go to release next week. Oh, fantastic. With the ones. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And so talking to those conversations and having those conversations up there, I think it is actually important because you're not talking about a huge electorate. I mean, you're talking about 30, 35,000 people. And of that, only about 60% of them turn out to the polls anyway. And it will be interesting because I know they talk about they've had this younger shift, but how many of them will actually turn up to vote? Exactly. It's one thing to get them on the roll, but are they actually going to turn up on election day when it matters? Mm. Or are they going to do what they've been doing with trying to get people on the Māori roll and go and try and bribe them to vote early? Right, yeah. Reality Check Radio did a poll in Northland to see what was going on because, of course, in the general role, things are actually quite sort of exciting up there. You've got, I mean, Willow Jean Prime, who I understand is missing in action a good chunk of the time. Uh, you've got Grant McCallum, who's the national MP. You've got um, Shane Jones, Uncle Shane's there. You've got a Green uh, candidate. You've got, an, um, I think, Mark Cameron's the ACT candidate. And then, of course, you've got Matt King standing for Democracy New Zealand. And, and he's put a lot of eggs into that electoral basket. So we thought we would do a snapshot to sort of see the mood of the electorate. And this was about four weeks ago. The number that actually stood out for me wasn't the predictability of the national candidate or the party vote national being the predominant vote. That sort of ran with the general consensus of the current polls. What was interesting for me were the undecideds. And from a candidate point of view, that number at that time was 30%. So nearly a third of people still hadn't made up their minds. Yeah. Yeah. And I've said that for a long time, that Northland is going to be one of the most important seats 
in this election because Northland has been let down consistently by National and Labour that if Northland really wanted change this year, this was the time to do it. They actually have a lot more power in Northland than they realise. It's just trying to get them to look into the policies of these parties so they actually do go and vote. Otherwise, they're going to be up a creek again mm. Right? Mm. with National and Labour. We've seen it time and time again. Mangamoka Gorge, still closed, delayed apparently, not going to be open for another year because of just the mm. lack of work that's been done and all the more slips have happened. The roading up there is shocking. I've been up north four times since April. Just the roads, the potholes. And so for me, this election in Northland is absolutely one of the most important elections and one of the most important seats. Mm. And in terms of electorates too, Northland, Titai Tokorau and Ikarawarafiti, I think have very a lot of similarities. Large geographical size, yet yeah, roading there yeah. isn't flash either. Um, yeah. uh, from what because that's obviously where my family's from, and they too have been let down. You've got Mecca who jumped the walker, yeah, to Tapatimari. Then you have in the general role in East Coast. You've got well, Kitty's spectacular meltdown. And now Tamati's taken her spot. And now Tamati has taken his her spot. And I think he's potentially trying to rely on his family connections up there to help and name recognition to help sec- secure the spot. But in terms of family connections, he's not standing on the Māori role. He's standing in the general role. And I know the mood of the people that I know that are in that electorate is they're not happy. They've had enough. Yeah. 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 And it's just trying to convince all those undecideds to make a decision and and go with it to try and make change. If they're Mm going to do it, this is the time. So I'm hoping that the Spark T-shirts actually get out there and start these conversations because we've got less than two months until the election. It's not a lot of time to work with. What are some of the misconceptions, too, that when these questions get asked, that these young voters and young young Māori have? So they, they will have a belief that something is one way when actually the truth is completely different. So you mentioned before around uh, the, the, some of the gender issues, but what are some of the, the common ones that you're coming across? I had a 15-year-old say, why is a trans woman not a woman? <laughs> and I... I said to her, look, you're 15, your prefrontal cortex hasn't developed yet, and that's the part that helps you make good decisions. I said, but a woman is not a woman if if they have a penis. And this man has a penis and will always be a biological male. And so we've had to go down that scientific route of this is what it is. Nobody is transphobic. What we are saying is it is about protecting our kids from things like puberty blockers. So when you get a bit more life experience, when you are a parent, come back, let's see if you have a different perspective. But at 15 years of age, for now, let the adults have these conversations to protect you guys. No, it is about making sure that 
all of our kids know that the support is there and we don't, people don't hate trans kids or they're not against them. We understand what the issues are, but we also understand that there are too many adults who are trying to give them medications that they shouldn't be giving them right now. Mm -hmm. And it's how do you allow people to express their individuality and uh, their curiosity without putting them through irreversible damage, particularly yeah. once you start medical transition. I mean, you know, we're we're of an age. I remember when I was a teenager, the whole everyone wanted to be like Robert Smith and the Cure and goths and punks with things. Look, the most dangerous thing that happened is you probably got one or two piercings, and uh, you know, the super glue could stuff the hair up. That's not going to affect your fertility. That's not going to affect your growth. It's not going to affect your bone density. Exactly. And so it's just putting out these very real issues and the potential risks of these things and just being really open with them. I have a very open relationship with my 13-year-old. There isn't anything that I hide from him. And so for me, we are straight up the guts and I will lay out the truth for you, good, bad, and ugly, because I want you to have the very best information so that you can make the best decisions out there, yeah. especially when you are not by my side. You've got a 13-year-old. I've got a 15- and 17-year-old. So what's he saying to you? Like, when he comes back from school, is, are you, is he having that, oh, mum, this happened at school today, or this is, I mean, what sort of stuff is he talking about? What's What is he seeing through his eyes? He sees, so they do have a rainbow youth group at school. They do have rainbow flags in the library, apparently. He doesn't get in, involved in any of it. He just rolls his eyes and walks away. Um, the good thing about his school is that they actually gave us an option to sign out of the REC classes that they do have that are specific. And they sent him off to the library. He did accidentally end up in one of the classes because he had a reliever and the reliever didn't know. But he just got up and walked out of class and went to the library anyway mm. because he knows that it's not stuff that he needs to be learning at school from a teacher, that it is things that we should be talking about at home, especially when the information I got said that um, – a person with penis or a person with uterus. I was like, no, these are boys and girls, males and females, we are not reducing my child to a person with a penis. Yeah. He's a young man. Yeah, and that's what I said. I'm raising a boy to be a man. He is going to be a man whether people like it or not. Mm. I'm not raising a person with a penis. My um, 15-year-old, he's just started um in the last couple of terms it was this year we had we moved schools with him uh just because of the cyclone geographically we couldn't get him to a, in a school so we moved him to the catholics with his brother and they had the RSC. and i said to said to him do you want me to sign you out of those classes and he said no. and he said it's hilarious he said i don't know what's funnier he said all the boys making fun and most of the boys I mean over half the kids in his class are Māori or Polynesian he said all you can hear is just giggling and laughing all the way through like they thought it was just ridiculous but he said it was how uncomfortable the teacher was because they chose not to bring in outside agencies oh, so the to do it the teachers it. did it themselves and he said 
all the boys want to do it because the teacher that does that does the pastoral care is so uncomfortable with it. But he said it's like an hour of stand-up comedy. He said it's really funny and none of them oh. take it seriously. Yeah. My boy does not take any of that stuff seriously. So I imagine if he, you know, by the time he gets to 15 and says, yeah, I want to do it and see what it's like, he'll come back much the same because mm-hmm. he just laughs at it now. It's just like, that's just crazy. Yeah, and I and I worry for the girls too. You know, like I think with our boys, a lot of our aged boys are actually seeing past that now. Like that's the generation ahead of them, and they yeah. and they they're just they've got that perspective. They're just far enough aback that yeah. they're looking at it, going, "That's ridiculous." Whereas the young women are yeah. a different story. I think there is a social contagion element there. Young women are looking for verification justification they're looking for support they're looking to be lifted up by their peers yeah Yeah. I do worry actually for young women with this are you seeing that I am you know that our girls are so much they're softer they need more care our boys are rough and tumble and they just brush things off so wore off a duck's back for a lot of things but for our girls, they internalize this stuff. They take it on board. We take things really, really to heart. Even if it's not aimed at us, we do. And so if as women we are worried, we most definitely should be worried about our girls. They yeah, don't have the coping skills right now. No, no. And peer pressure amongst young women is always tough. Absolutely. And- and I think it's even, I think it's the toughest it's, it's ever been. Like I've talked to friends with daughters and and they do, they, they worry, you know, how do you prepare them for what is out there? And particularly if they go into further education, the level of indoctrination through yeah. university now is just off the charts. And it's un, it seems to be going on unchecked. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it is for me. It's about trying to, connect with parents and say, look, this is what's going on. You need to keep an eye on what's happening in your child's school. They should be talking to their communities about what they are teaching. And if they're not, something is amiss. So I just got a message the other night from a woman whose child was meant to start school next year. She isn't with the father anymore, but she's been sending him my content and they are looking at homeschooling their child next year because they don't want their child to be dealing with that kind of stuff as soon as they start school. The guidelines that the ministry have put out are for years one to eight, and some of that stuff in there is just highly inappropriate. When you're talking to other Māori parents, are they concerned about the or in the decreasing rates of literacy amongst Māori students? Is that, is that something that they're aware of? Or have they been gaslit by those in education that everything is okay and actually getting in touch with your te ao Māori is more important than being able to read and write when you leave school? It's not a topic that we have talked a great deal about yet, but it is one that I just mentioned in the last couple of days. Yeah, there's definite, definite, potential for a lot more conversations because I'm like our truancy rates are really really high but our numeracy and literacy rates are falling and if they're falling 
we need to be asking why they're falling, why is gender ideology more important than teaching our kids how to read and write and do numbers. Mm. And so those are conversations that we're just starting to get into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely important conversations to get into. On a slightly different topic, talking to Di the other day, Di Landy, and of course, Posey's looking at coming back, Kelly J. Keane's looking at coming back uh, for the court case in September uh, with Eli Rubber Chicken, as Di likes yeah. to call. Are you, because you are in Auckland, are you going to pop along to the courthouse and uh, see see what's going on? I am. I like to do things for myself. I like to see things with my own eyes. I have absolutely no faith in mainstream media, legacy media, and so I will be there with bells on and with my little air horn. We took the boys out on the weekend, and so we won prizes, and I got an air horn. <laughs> but I will be there to welcome her back. The reality is, is if Chanel and the rest of the trans activists didn't turn up in March at Albert Park, she wouldn't be coming back. Yeah. So the fact that she was shut down from being able to say a few words and let other women say a few words, this is all on Chanel and the trans activists. They have only got themselves to blame for her return. They've been in the shadows. I mean, unless you've been engaged with this identitarian movement and even identitarian politics, unless you're actively engaged in it, most, you know, Joe Normie Kiwi is complete, was completely unaware of all of this stuff going on yeah. until March. And I yeah. had people contact me saying, what on earth is all this about? This is insane. Yeah. It's like, welcome to my world. This is what I've been living in for the last five years. You know, really, if they'd just been adult about it yeah. and let her speak, let them have the rally, not get involved, you know, scroll on. Yeah. None, None of, of this, this would have happened. happened. Yeah. We wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation right now. But people don't know how to mind their business. No. She wasn't hurting anyone. It was a pure conversation. I didn't know much about her before she came. I still don't know much about her. I just know she came to talk and she wanted to say some things. I got stopped from doing that. And so did everybody else that was there, including trans women. Trans women that I met were there to listen to her. They were stopped too, all because some people's egos got the better of them. Yeah, this, I mean, look, Neil Oliver always says that this isn't about what they say it's about. I really do feel that a lot of the vehemence in the trans radical activists, it's not about trans. Yeah, it's not. It's really not. There has been an acceptance of trans people for years, especially in New Zealand. If we didn't accept trans people in New Zealand, how did Georgina Beyer become the first politician? Yeah, exactly. Trans acceptance has been happening in New Zealand for a long time. It has only been because of a bunch of young radicals in the last couple of years that we are seeing the division that we have today. I've certainly seen a, a, a divorce between the LGBs and yeah. the TQIs, for yeah. sure. Mm. Absolutely. You know, the LGBs are cutting off the QTIs. Mm. They don't want to do it anymore because they have gone a step too far. Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, well, yeah. as always, now again for those who haven't caught up with some Auntie Hey Hey magic, and I'm I'm just getting a visual now of Auntie Hey Hey with a horn. Ha ha ha! It would be so funny. Um, where will they? As you said, you're on TikTok, and I think that's just under the name changes. So, what's the TikTok name? Auntie Hey Hey. So I had my Auntie Hey Hey 3.0 account was taken for talking about party Māori and John Tamahiri and for talking about trans issues. Those are my two big topics. And so I got stung by trolls and they mass reported me. Yeah, my account got taken. So I have gone back to just Auntie Hey Hey. Very good. And yeah. uh, you're on the X as well? I am yeah. on the X, Auntie Hey Hey on the X as well. Great. Uh, safe to say that we won't be getting a Christmas hamper or Christmas card from John then this year? Oh, probably not. I might get a few things, but it won't be a hamper or a card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's always great to talk to you. And actually, in the uh, coming weeks as well, uh, I think I, Little Birdie told me that you might be popping into the political panel from time to time on a Friday. I did, yes, had a conversation the other night with a little yeah. somebody. So we're quite looking for um, – because I've got a funny – actually, I've got a funny feeling you and I might be on the same panel, so I'm really excited about that. I didn't hear about that too, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that will be – uh, could you imagine between you and um, Marty, I think will be between you, Marty, and myself uh, with poor old Paul, I know that once we head down uh, the pathways that all of us have shared interest in, it's going to be – oh, fire, I can feel – I can feel firecrackers <laughs> now. It'll be exciting. Yeah. It'll be great. Hey, look, Karina, as always, this is Karina Shields. Auntie, hey, hey, thank you so much for giving up your time this morning. Don't disappear um, because, as I said, the, the wonderful Marty will be here very, very soon with Media Matters on Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. You're with Marie, and this is Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. So great to chat with Karina again. And some really interesting ideas, particularly if you are up in those Te Tai Tokarau electorate. Definitely some food for thought. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me at inbox at realitychecker.radio or drop us a text to 2057. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. The following interview contains topics that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If you would like to contact us in regards to any of our content, please email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture. I am Marie here on RCR, and with great pleasure, I introduce you to Ali Marie Diamond from Wahine Toa Rising, survivor, leader, and co-founder. Good morning, Ali. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's so great to finally chat to you. Ellie was introduced to me by uh, Denise Ritchie. Many of you may remember the interview I did with Denise about a month or so ago from Stop Demand, a really powerful interview. If you haven't had a chance to hear that interview, all you need to do is go to realitycheck.radio, click replace, then go to my page and you will find that interview there. Wahine Tō Rising 
Denise alluded to it, but explain to our listeners what it is and what space you're working in currently. It was co-founded in 2019, so just before COVID. We founded it because we saw a really strong need to have an organisation in New Zealand that supported women and young people um, and look, everybody, but I say I, I will refer to women and young people because it is majority of women who need support to either exit the sex trade or to support them while they're in the sex trade. I think the only organisation in New Zealand that does a lot of that work is NZPC. And we just felt that we needed to have another voice in there. Yeah, because, I mean, NZPC worked, I mean, 20 years since the decriminalisation of prostitution. I mean, gosh, where does that go? But what I hadn't realised when I spoke to Denise was the differences between legalisation and decriminalisation. And in a way, decriminalisation, as far as the sex industry is concerned, literally created the Wild West. A lot of these people, especially these vulnerable women and children, are actually in a way almost more at risk post-decriminalisation. Is that what you're seeing with the work you do? Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely believe that women need to be decriminalised. That is not an argument. But full decriminalisation legalises everybody. So legalises the pimps, the people who are profiting from women and young people, everyone. So in some ways we still have a modern-day slavery and it's the the vulnerable ones that are most at risk, women and children of colour, women and children who are living in poverty, women and children in homelessness, women and children who are leaving domestic violent relationships, women and children who have experienced sexual abuse. These are the, the women and children who are falling through the cracks and that's incredibly heartbreaking. Hmm. What are some of the calls that you get in terms of help? So how does that manifest? What does that look like when someone reaches out to you through Rahini Tōrōrising? Such tough. So we are a fairly new organisation, as I said, 2019. So we do not work on any, we have no funding whatsoever. We work purely from a, a volunteer and hard of service perspective. Um, we are all survivors. This is why we do what we do. Um, but when calls come in, it's, it's heartbreaking and these are women who and some men too these are people who are who are desperate they're they're desperate to get out they don't want to be doing this anymore they need support with housing and um, some need support with uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation and counseling and they need a bubble of love around them and it's it's hard um, when we don't have the resources to be able to do that and we need to be able to refer them to other people. Mm. But the scary thing is I have tried to find organisations that we can we can refer women to for these sorts of help and they say to me, I'm really sorry, but um, that's sex work and we're not funded for that. We're only funded for sexual violence and we're not funded for sex work. It sounds a little bit like, I, I mean, I know you're not based in New Zealand, but there's a commercial for TSB that was on several years ago and it was a taxi driver and someone saying, I want to go to such and such street. And they're like, no, we only do avenues and lanes. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, a victim is a victim is a victim. Yeah. Surely if, they, if, they, if they've gotten to that point where they've reached out for help, you'd want to be able to help them. Yeah. 
Is, and I mean, is that in New Zealand where you're striking this, or are you striking this everywhere? This is a new. It, look, it's everywhere. It's mm. everywhere at the moment. It, it's so frustrating because all I'm coming up across is sex work is the work. There's no funding for that. It's not sexual violence. Oh, it's sometimes I I can't get my head around it. Like I, mm. I I'm saying these women are coming to us. They want to get out. They feel like they're being raped every day. They feel like they're still living this um, sexual abuse that they've been raised with or that they've lived through. They need help. They yeah. want help. Where do we get them help? We can't. There's no help. They say, we went to NZPC and they said to us, it's okay, look, it, it's like a job. You, you just need to go take a break, have a bit of a holiday, and then come back. Well, that's not really helpful, is it? When we refer to that acronym, we're referring to the Prostitutes Collective, correct? Yep. Are they living in this paradigm of a happy hooker, Julia Roberts, pretty woman type scenario? Yep. Is that what they believe yep. they've created? I, I don't know what they believe I've created. I, I can't get my head around it. Like, seriously. I don't know. Have you seen? They have a handbook. They have a handbook that they give women who go to them. I should send you a copy. Have you seen it? No. Oh, I, I need to send you a copy. You'll be flabbergasted. You, you'll be completely flabbergasted. Things in there like um, how to give head jobs without gagging and choking, how to, get, how to take anal without being injured. If you're in an emergency or you're in trouble, put a whistle around your neck and blow it in their ear and scream fire because if you scream anything else, nobody's going to come. And this is what we're calling work. I don't know any other job that's like this, but well, okay. And, that, and that's the thing with decriminalisation, isn't it? Because if it were legalised, it would fall under not only all the taxation elements, but it would fall under all the health and safety elements as well. But decriminalisation, it slips through all of those regulatory cracks. Yeah. Does it not? I think it. I think it is. Look, I'm not very political. I'm. I'm a survivor, so I'm. Mm. Um, I, I purely come from a place of not wanting to see anybody else go through what I went through. But I'm pretty sure it already is under health and safety. Right. Um, but from my understanding, and don't quote me from, but from my understanding, there's only been a couple of health inspections in Brussels. And what do they do? I, I mean, I don't understand. Do they go in there? And it, it would be more. I guess their health and safety would be, are you using condoms? Are you using dental dams? I'm I'm blown away by the amount of funding that the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective gets because I'm like, can we not use that funding for support services to prevent mm. women being killed in prostitution and prevent women being abused in prostitution and prevent trafficking that mm. supposedly we don't have, but we know we do? Yeah. So, I mean, I've written down here abusive relationships. I mean, there would be a lot of women who have been raised in abusive family and whānau relationships where when they transition to sex work, same shit, different day. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you and break that cycle? Definitely not by full decriminalisation. Mm. There has to be accountability. Men need to have accountability. So if you're saying to men, do not hit your women, do not rape them, do not abuse them. But you know what, if you go pay for it, then that's okay. So we're sending a lot of mixed messages really to men. And I think to myself, it's no wonder that New Zealand's domestic violence rates are at, at an all-time high and, you know, and strangulation and, and all these other, other things that are happening. And there's been, you know, you can Google the newspapers and articles and um, you can Google now prostitution in New Zealand and it, 
there's lots of articles now about, you know, women in strip clubs who are not being heard and who are being abused. Recently there was a, a ex-member of parliament that was running a um, high-end escort agency and had a lot of women who were complaining about the work safety and um, how they were being treated. There was a homeless women who were in the hotels because they had nowhere to go and gangs were coming in and raping them and trying to prostitute them in exchange for drugs and other things. So there's heaps of stories out there at the moment. Um, the girls that were trafficked recently, you know, up north, that there's so many stories out there and yet New Zealand Prostitutes Collective and the government are saying, yes, full decriminalisation is working. And also where you barely see these stories in the media. It's crazy. Because it's not politically expedient for them to talk about it. I mean, what do I know that Denise was saying she's seen a shift in the time that she's been doing her work. She said once upon a time ago, she put out a press release. She said, I don't do it very often. I put out a press release. It would get picked up. She said, I'd do a series of interviews and I'd get my message out there and then, you know, we and keep doing the work. She said this time around with the anniversary, she said crickets. You could have driven a truck through the space left because there was nothing shaking. She said, and that's been quite a shift, which is concerning because it's almost monkey see, monkey do, isn't it? If you don't see it and you don't hear about it, therefore you don't need to speak about it because it's not happening. But that's certainly not the case from what you're saying. It's not. That's because I'm sure Janice can speak to this too. There's children being pimped by, you know, families in Manukau City. There was a whole, um, they tried to call for a review because of the children that were there. You know, we have an organisation in New Zealand called ECPAT Alert New Zealand, so E-C-P-A-T, ECPAT Alert New Zealand. They have records and records and um, stats and figures of the child sex trafficking that is currently happening in New Zealand. And I think to myself, what's what's going on? And then I think to myself, is it because they're coloured? If we had a, you know, a little, uh, a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old white girl on the side of the street who looked like she came from quite an affluent, you know, community who was being pimped out, there'd be an uproar. We'd see it all over the media, the news. It would be everywhere. Well, see, I'm actually wondering whether it would, only because they probably in some perverted, crazy way would think that that was okay. And the only reason I say that is that have you seen the furore in recent weeks here about a new children's book that has been released targeted at 8 to 11-year-olds called What is Sex? No. Oh, right. You send me the P, you send me the um, the PC guide. I will send you a link for this. It is literally like that guide. It's What is Sex. It is a picture book for 8 to 11-year-olds explaining everything from how to, to do fingering and, yeah. and manual what? stimulation, yes, anal sex, how to use condoms, oh. plus pictures, everything. And their attitude is, is like, no, no, this is an important educational guide. So this book is to go into school libraries. What are they doing? Well, and this is the thing. What We're is your grooming view? our children for, oh. <laughs> so that is, this, I mean, is this grooming? Because for me, by normalising these sex acts to children that young. So I'm not a prude. I'm not, I'm not saying that no. adults can't have healthy, fulfilled sex yeah. lives, but eight to 11-year-olds, yeah, to me, that's a line that's been crossed. It's definitely been crossed. And we want our children to grow up with healthy attitudes to have healthy sex lives. 
We don't want to be raising our children in a time where, you know, where sex is, the violence of sex is normal. Like, I don't want my child to to grow up thinking sexual violence is normal and that's a part of a healthy sex life because that's almost like what that book is doing, right? Mm. It's saying sexual violence. I feel, oh, (laughs) It is a real concern. Like it's part of the reason I took this job on and why my show is on culture is because I've seen a dismantling of all these structures and pillars of Western civilization. And one of those is the pillar of the family. As a survivor, destruction and degradation of the family, particularly absent fathers or men. I mean, we know that the majority of sexual abuse occurs within homes where the victim knows the perpetrator. So how do we regain that? And if and by dismantling those structures, all you're doing, I would have thought, would be exacerbating this problem, not fixing it. Yeah, yeah I agree. It, it's exactly what we're doing. We're almost giving permission for it to happen. We're, we're enabling the behaviour. We're encouraging the behaviour. We're giving permission for, to, for people to be predators and and violent you know um violent men and sexual deviants and pedophiles and we're giving them a golden ticket Mm. i asked denise about this porn what influence do you think porn and the accessibility to porn makes today oh it's crazy so porn like i you know i haven't been um in the sex industry for a while but even back then, we, you know, we used to have those seedy little video stores, you know, underneath the massage parlors. So I used to work at, at Lash Reed down there on Fort Lang, um, and there was a little video store that was downstairs. And I remember we used to have to go down there to assist the men while they were watching porn to get them off. So, yeah, mm. it, was, it was disgusting. Um, you'd walk in there and it was like this musty, disgusting smell of, you know, stale cum and sweat and BO and, you know, it was gross. But and now porn is really accessible. So back then men would come into the parlour and they would be like, they would expect you to be the porn star that was on the video. That's what they wanted. That was their fantasy. Back then, porn, even though it was bad, was pretty mild compared to what porn is now. Like it's mm. only gotten worse as the years have gone by. And now it's more accessible. Anyone can get hold of it. Kids can get hold of it. You just, you know, you can type something into Google and it'll just come up. I think one of the worst search engines is Bing. You type something in there and it's just porn. Porn comes up. Crazy. It's just too accessible. But now boys, young boys think, that that's what women want. That's not what women want. No. <laughs> women do not want that. <laughs> but that's normal now mm. from a male perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I worry about our boys. Mm-hmm. I, I read, I'm, I've got two teenage boys and yep. I worry that our boys are being emasculated, that many don't have strong male role models. And as you said, things like porn are incredibly accessible and that is where they're taking their learnings from. How important do you think having good, strong, solid men are in fixing this problem? It's really, really, really important. And I think I would love to see more men coming on board and standing up for women and children and saying, no, this this behaviour, this is not who we are. You know, we, we're better than this. This is not... Um, this is not healthy. And 
Because the more men that come forward, I guess, then they become the role ma- role models. Over here we have, and I would recommend talking to him as well, over here um, we have an amazing young man. His name is Daniel Principe, so P-R-I-N-C-I-P-E, I think it is. I can send you his contact details. Mm-hmm. Um, he is incredible. He's a young man who was affected by pornography and he now um, travels from school to school talking to young boys and girls about pornography, um, healthy sexual attraction, consent especially, healthy relationships. And he's doing some amazing work around educating our kids around what is healthy and acceptable and what is not so healthy and acceptable. Mm. That's what we need, more of Mm. them. Because the difficulty with decriminalisation, of course, is it reduces a woman or a young man in sex work to nothing short of a product, an item. Yeah, a slave. So in Northern Territory, when I went up, I went up to Northern Territory to, to speak because they were adopting full decrim because everyone follows the New Zealand model. Everyone thinks the New, all across the world they think the New Zealand model is the perfect model. And I went to Northern Territory and I was sitting in the room while they were having the community hearing. Nothing was being reported, but they were just having a conversation amongst themselves. And they went, you know what, we've already decided that we're adopting full decrim. That's not the argument. What we need to work out now is how do we advertise the product without offending anybody? Oh, gosh. Women are not products. No. We are not. We're human beings. We are not a product. Many of the guests that I have are really involved in, um, well, for to use the other side's derogatory term, the TERFs, and they are literally wanting to stand up for biological women. And I've never been particularly feminist in my 50-plus-plus plus years. Yeah. However, what I have certainly seen is I think women are under attack more than we've ever been in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Is there a downward filter for what's happening in the space in regards to the gender warfare that's going on to what's happening in the space in terms of sex work and the sex industry? Yeah, I I just think that as women we're becoming, and I don't want to say powerless or voiceless because I am far from powerless and voiceless, but society is definitely trying to push us down. I feel like almost back to the old days, you know, when women used to walk so many steps behind their men and they'd be at home cooking and cleaning and raising kids while men were at work and women were obedient and, you know, and submissive. And I feel like in some ways society is trying to push us back to those days. I don't think so. We, we can't, the only way we stop that is by women uniting together and starting to make a stand, and I think that that's that's all we can do. See, that's the trouble with that traditional relationship, isn't it? Is that a lot of women are actually quite happy to do that. I'm, you know, I'm happy to cook and clean because yeah. you know I, I probably cook better than. I mean, I'm not married yeah. anymore. That, that probably says a lot, but anyway. But I'm happy to cook and clean, but don't think that that's all I'm worth. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I have a lot more to give to the world than just cooking and cleaning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like Northern Territory, because so for people that haven't, I should have actually said this sooner, you are actually based in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. In the Northern Territory, I mean, that is a very isolated rural state Yeah. with one major city, which, you know, really is 
quite provincial. Uh, Darwin, I think, is still got very much a provincial mindset, doesn't it? Yeah. It also has a very, very high Aboriginal population. How do they feel about all of this? Because I know surely the experiences you've seen with Māori and Pacifica women in New Zealand, the alarm bells that will be ringing for those populations in the Northern Territory. So in the Northern Territory, there's, and you can read about it, you can actually look it up, there is a group of people up there who live in the long grasses um, and you would be gobsmacked that it's like a pocket of a third world country in Australia. So they they make their own shelters, no running water, no toilets. Um, they're called the long grass people, so that's where they live in the long grasses. Um, and then they have the long grass women. The long grass women call themselves resource gatherers. And what that what happens is men come along and they pick them up and they take them for sex, and then they pay them with alcohol or cigarettes, clothing for the children, food, whatever resources they need to take home to their family. And then they go home to their family after they get dropped off and their husbands take them or their partners and then they're given to the other men in the village to be raped. And and this is their life. I I just, I'm gobsmacked. I, I don't know. I feel so powerless. Like every day I feel so powerless because there's so few people speaking up for for our most vulnerable for our most vulnerable communities. There's so few people speaking up, and I, yeah, I it breaks my heart every day, and I don't know. Um, the sad part about that, though, is I guess there is a sector of society that would say, "Oh, yes, but that's their choice." That by altering or changing that, that is disrupting the cultural norm. That yeah. would be racist. You can't do that. It's racist not to do anything. That's what I I reckon. It's racist and discriminatory to stand by and do nothing. And, you know, it's that whole thing, you know, if I can't see it, then it's not happening. Mm. Don't Mm. show me. I don't want to look at it because then if I I can't see it, it's not there. Mm. And it reminds me of when I was a child growing up, you know, and I was... I was raised in what I call a cult. It was they were called the Worldwide Church of God, and there was a lot of sexual abuse um, happening within the, within the church, and it often reminds me of that. You know, I remember telling them, you know, this man is doing this to me, and they'll be like, "Oh, that's not happening. You must be encouraging it, or it's in your head, or you're making things up, or you know, it would always get swept under the carpet. No, no one wanted to know about it. it was was too hard to face or they didn't believe it um, or whatever it was, but no one wanted to look at it and they just sweep it under the carpet, sweep it under the carpet. It's almost like burn. Yeah, I don't know, going backwards. Mm. And whenever you get organised groups like that, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, not all men are predators, but if you have got a predator, and I had done an interview just recently with a guy who deals in cluster B personality disorders and how it only takes one person with one of those disorders. So something like narcissistic personality disorder or psychopathy or histrionic personality disorder or disassociative personality disorder to actually come into a space, a group or an organization and completely turn it on on its head. So they are the obviously the charismatic cult leader or the one that will suck people into the orbit and convince them that it's all going to be okay. And with that power comes abuse. And I think 
that is time and memorial, isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely my ex-partner to a T. Yeah, mm. and he's uh, um, very, very violent. But, um, yeah, it's I get really lost because I just don't know. We just need more people, mm. more people on board, more conversation. I love that you're having this conversation because it means when people have conversations, it means people care. And when people care, it means we have some hope. You know, if no one's having conversations and that's when, you know, I guess all hope is lost. Um, yeah. So then if people are hearing this conversation and they're thinking, you know what, I know someone that needs help or I have been in this situation and I've been looking for a way to reach out and help, how do they do that? That they ring, they get in contact. So jump on our Facebook page or um, and just send, flick me a message. It's only me who gets the messages. Um, so flick me a message and then I give them a call straight away to have a chat with them. And it could be someone who just needs to ring and chat at midnight and that's okay. And it could be midnight my time and that's okay. That's I, I'm there to listen. People in and out of the sex trade, and I say everybody. I mean, when I started this organisation, uh, you know, the pro lobby and a lot of other people. I wasn't very political. I had no idea um, about politics. All I knew was that um, I had led a pretty horrific life and ended up in the sex trade in in Auckland. And um, I did not want uh, another person to ever have to go through the pain that I went through Um, and the pain that I still go through now at 50 years of age. Like I've been out of the sex trade for 30 years but not out of the sex trade. So my mind... My emotions, my mental health is still very much still there. Um, and I don't want anyone else to have to go through that that pain and that hurt. We're not a Christian organisation. We're not a, um, a red feminist organisation. We're, we're, um, we have a collective of survivors. One is a man, a gay man. We are all-inclusive, not, not exclusive. Um, everyone has a story, like everybody. Even though you support for decriminalisation, those women still have a story um, and that's what we're here for, It's to listen and, and be there for them and give them support and surround them in love and regardless of where they are on that, on that um, yeah, structure. So, mm. yeah. Well, Ellie, this has been a real privilege to chat to you. As she said, uh, look out Wahini Toa Rising, look out for the Facebook page if you want to reach out, or if you have any, if you need a link sent to them, um, you're going to send me some stuff as well. So, yes, and I'm going to, yes, I'll put (laughs) write a note down to get get that across to you. The book's called Stepping Forward, so yeah, you'll be an eye-opener. Mm, so we'll get on to that uh if you have any questions, conversation for another day <laughs> <laughs> um oh gosh i know denise and i are going to set a date to talk about porn at some point i get all the fun topics on this show i tell you um <laughs> you keep listening here with county culture still more great information news marty of course is still yet to come uh here on rcr Thank you to Ellie today for her time. This issue and these conversations are just so important. And I know the content can be upsetting for many, but a problem shared is a problem halved. And it is important to know that so many women and children are being adversely affected. These issues are so often swept under the rug, ignored or at worse, endorsed by the powers that be.
I thought having spoken to Ali, I would also replay the conversation I had with Denise Ritchie a few months back. As I mentioned, Denise is one that introduced Ali and I, and she's able to provide you with some context of the enormity of this issue. This is an excerpt of a chat that we had. The full conversation can be found at realitycheck.radio backslash replays. Select counterculture and you will find the replay there, the full replay. Please be aware this interview does contain confronting themes and may not be suitable for our younger listeners. So discretion is advised. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie and my guest this morning is Denise Ritchie, founder of Stop Demand. She's got a legal background and a very sharp mind and is very passionate about the issue of prostitution and the denigration and selling of women in New Zealand. Denise, some of the information that you've sent me in preparation for this is eye-opening. And Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Good morning, Marie, and thanks for having us on. No, it's so good to have you. Firstly, Stop Demand, what is it? Stop Demand was set up in uh, 2003, so that's 20 years ago. At, uh, earlier than that, 10 years uh, prior to that, I had been working in the, the global sex trade field. Um, oddly enough, initially as a, a senior, uh, sort of an, a mature student at law school, and I put together a a dissertation on New Zealand looking at changing its laws so we could prosecute our child sex offenders and pedophiles who were raping children overseas. At that stage, you could only prosecute for uh, crimes that are committed on your territory. So this was called extraterritorial law. And as a result of that, connected with a a well-known international organisation, got on their international board out of Bangkok, and we were focused on uh, child prostitution, trafficking, and then a few years later with the internet, the proliferation, we got involved in child sex abuse material and the trading of that. Uh, But it was some years later that I thought, There's amazing work being done all around the world on protecting children. But this trade is like any trade, supply and demand. And these children were being supplied because there was a demand. I mean, traffickers, for example, they traffic a commodity. I mean, if red socks were in, they'd be trafficking red socks. But body parts of women and children were what were being trafficked as the product. It made me realise that because the trade seemed to be getting worse the longer I was involved with it, that we really hadn't put any energy into looking at demand. So as a result, uh, Stop Demand was set up to start looking at the other side of the coin and saying, what is it that uh, is driving demand? What are the attitudes and behaviours? And it has to be said uh, that it is men, primarily men, overwhelmingly men, who are the consumers of women and prostitution in the other trades. So we set up Stop Demand. We do have six platforms. We have three, which is uh, the the trade, uh, my area of expertise, prostitution, pornography and trafficking. Uh, The other three areas, because we're dealing with male attitudes, also addresses rape, including incest, rape in war, and then sexual denigration. Genesis of, you know, even men in boardrooms, rugby clubs, telling rape jokes. You know, that's where it starts. And uh, yeah, so we're a very small group. Um, our budget this year was less than 20,000. We don't have any staff. Um, I basically do uh, the work from time to time and we're run by a board. In terms of demand, since the decriminalisation of prostitution in 2003, mm-hmm. has demand in this country gone up or gone down? Gone up. We would say there's plenty of evidence, albeit anecdotal, that it has gone up because 
if you normalise something, then there is every chance it uh, will go up. And when I refer to some of the cases, uh, that will become evident. Um, but, Marie, maybe I just would kick off that the reason we wanted to get a bit of energy around this issue uh, just recently, this, well, this in the last few weeks, is that 20 years ago, New Zealand took the step of decriminalising prostitution. And that was, we were one of the first countries in the world to do that. I mean, there have been very model, various models around the world around criminalisation, but New Zealand decided to decriminalise uh, prostitution. And just for listeners, mm. we've seen this with marijuana as well, explain the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation, because there is a very distinct difference, and I think people get the two conflated. Right. With legalisation, there's a lot more regulation around uh, taxes. There's a lot more control over the setting of a, an industry or a sector, for example. Decriminalisation seems to be a softer approach, but in a way it has a lot more gaps. So in other words, what happened prior to decriminalisation was that women could be charged with uh, a criminal activity. Uh, so could the men because it was criminalised right across the board. And the belief was that if the selling of sex were to be decriminalised, then uh, it would make it safer for women. Now, there's been a number of problems that have arisen out of that because not only when you decriminalise a trade, it, you won't only decriminalise it for the, the sellers, but also for the buyers for the pimps, for the brothel owners. So this, this law, in, in effect, turned pimps, which can include gangs, and turned them into respectable business people. So therein lay another problem. One of the difficulties has been that uh, in the law, part of the law was that police had to have a hands-off approach. So police just can't go into a brothel like they could have before. So that is another huge gap in the existing law if there is uh, if there are uh, behaviors and and crimes being committed in brothels it is very unlikely that those will get to uh, be notified unless a woman or a brothel owner takes that step of doing so so in a way the law has left women a lot more vulnerable um, in many respects we should also point out that the prostitution in New Zealand really exist across three uh, sectors. One is the street. Uh, the other is what's called the managed indoor, which would be like brothels. And the third is private indoor. They're called subs, so they are small owner-operated brothels. It is quite mind-blowing, really, to think in terms of the law that decriminalisation almost has created a completely unregulated wild west mm -hmm. of selling women. And, well, that's and right. Yes, the comments that have come to us over the years, I think could be, well, we've got some quotes that uh, we put out in our media release a short while ago, but one survivor who has uh, been in the trade, and we don't call it an industry or work, we don't believe it deserves that respectability, so stop demand calls it a, a trade, uh, denoting again supply and demand. Um, and this survivor wrote, Decriminalising prostitution has simply strengthened and emboldened misogynistic attitudes amongst New Zealand sex buyers. I believe that for many punters, causing mental discomfort to the girl or woman they buy is necessary for them to truly enjoy the experience. I thought I had a low self-esteem at 17, but prostitution has absolutely destroyed it. And another woman, Sarah, 
has written of her experiences, and this is available uh, on a website uh, for anybody to read. We can give the details later. But her experiences before and after uh, decriminalisation, she said prostitution is not a life and not work, definitely not work, paid rape, most definitely. You are not getting the happy hooker narrative that politicians, and in particular New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, want us to, to take on board. So we wanted to put a contrary position forward because we knew that New Zealand Prostitutes Collective were planning a three-day hui of celebration, and we thought we need to put forward another narrative and that there was very little for New Zealand to celebrate. I think we need to make it very clear, Marie, at the outset, this has not been anti-sex, okay? This is not a position about being anti-sex. People need to hear that. We distinguish it from, say, platforms like Tinder that facilitate hookup for parties because those parties both want sex, or if there's more than two. He wants sex, she wants sex. That's their business. Okay, we have no issue over that. But what we're saying is prostitution is a very, very different beast because it's a trade where typically only one party wants sex, and that's the sex buyer. And already that should raise to us a big red flag. And in a day where we're trying to teach people about consent, sexual consent should be enthusiastic. Yes, you will you will be pushed to find anyone in prostitution who is giving enthusiastic consent for a sexual experience day in, day out, multiple times a day. So therein lies the problem. And one, what we're finding is that many of these men, they believe that they've bought the right to inflict on their purchase acts and abuse that survivors tell us that they believe would never be consented to by their wives or their partners or by, even by Tinder hookups. So they feel that because one woman, interestingly, I heard her being interviewed this uh, last week, she said that when she first got into prostitution and it was illegal before the uh, decriminalisation, she picked up that most of her clients felt embarrassed, right? It was something they knew was against the law and something they shouldn't be doing. But, of course, now they've got the government's stamp of approval. It is a legally sanctioned act for men to go in and just pay for women as they wish and demand any sort of service as they wish. And because there's no recourse for um, if any of these women, particularly those who are working in brothels, were to lay a complaint, and you can read many survivor stories where they were horrifically treated by a client, but of course the brothel doesn't want to risk having the police come round. The girls are told to be quiet about it, suck it up, etc. And there was a story in the Herald uh, a couple of years back where in a Whangarei brothel, interestingly it was touted as an ethical brothel, a woman who uh, was working on her very first day believed her first, well, I think it was her first client, but on her very first day at the brothel, she believed that she had been raped by the buyer and she even took the case to court and he was acquitted. You know, the law is there to protect women, but women are not being protected. And this is just the indoor sector. You know, don't get us started on the street sector uh, because we know, uh, and in our media release, which uh, anyone can find on our website just under news, there's been some terrible, terrible, extreme ends of violence uh, against, uh, we've listed a number of women. Uh, many of them will be names that 
listeners are familiar with, Bella Tapania, Renee Duckmanton, uh, Mallory Manning, Susie Sutherland, a woman who's 24, but she got named suppression to protect her daughter, reading about her mother's murder later on. But these are women since decriminalisation who were viciously and variously raped, bashed, set on fire, strangled, mutilated, and repeatedly run over and dumped, and most of those by sex fires. Now, that law did not protect them. In fact, is a good argument to say is but for the normalisation of allowing those women to be out in the street. This is not victim blaming, but but for that law, but for their sense that it was okay for them to prostitute, those women would most likely still be living today. So there's so much BS in the narrative that's going on. Pre-decriminalisation, one of the assumptions of women entering sex work is mm. uh, generally poverty, drug abuse or drug addiction, yep. the need or the influence of a stronger male person in their life, i.e. partner or parent, that forces mm-hmm. them into that work. Right. With decriminalisation now, where you have a legal barrier to that's being removed, mm-hmm. so there are no consequences if you are arrested, do you believe that some of these women entering sex work have a Pollyanna view of what they're going into, that they've been sold this dream through OnlyFans or pornography or social media and that they're going to go in, it's going to be like one of their Tinder hookups and it's all going to be champagne and giggles and they're going to earn a bit of money for it and that's not the reality? Is Is there that sort of perception or not? Absolutely correct. Look, just while we're talking about that, and I'm hoping that maybe uh, you might get an opportunity to interview Ali Marie Diamond, a wonderful, wonderful woman, a survivor, Kiwi. She set up a survivor grassroots group, and it's called Wahini Toa, T-O-A, Rising. Wahini Toa Rise, if if any listener wanted to look further into the survivor's experiences, she has a survivor stories page. And to read the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. But one of the common uh, common themes has been that for young people, they have seen alluring ads and that's how they've got into it. They haven't got money. They've seen big signs up, girls, girls, makes lots of money. You don't need any experience, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's drawing it in and drawing people in. So uh, decriminalisation has definitely lured desperate young women and also migrants into the trade. So you're right, Marie. Uh, but on top of that is also uh, fueling the uh, increasing number of children and young people because you cannot sell contractually under law. You cannot uh, enter a contract if you're under 18. You're not deemed to be competent enough. That's in keeping with the UN conventions, etc. So that's why prostitution is set at 18 uh, as opposed to age of consent being 16, because, well, we would say if it was set anywhere, it should be way higher. Anyone under 18 is deemed to be in an illegal trade. Now, the normalisation of this trade has reached the, uh, the the sort of bottom rung level, whereby Maori wardens would report to us years ago of children in school uniforms, girls in school uniforms being dropped off even by parents in cars sitting waiting and so the girls could go and do a few blowjobs on, on their way to school. Because it's become so normalised and auntie is doing this work and okay, she's 18, what it's come to now 
is, is, is the sexual exploitation of children is no longer recognised as a sex crime against a child. It's just become a normal activity, but they're a bit naughty because they're doing it a bit too young. So that's the normalisation of process that decriminalisation has fed into. And more uh, concerning to us would be what is the message that it sends to men and boys? Currently in New Zealand, what our politicians and what our laws have said to guys is there's nothing wrong. You've got the stamp of approval by our laws. And if you're feeling randy, if you're with a team of blokes one night, you're drunk and you think, let's go and screw a hooker. Who's got a bit of money? Who's got a credit card? And they can just go off and find a woman and, and just do what they want to her. That's the sort of messaging we're saying, well, hang on a minute, that is just not teaching dignity and respect and, and working towards gender equity society when you've got guys that have got that attitude. And when you look at some of the, the information that's coming out of schools, uh, like Christchurch Boys School and Christchurch Girls School some years ago, where the girls were saying that they just, um, you know, were feeling, young women today are feeling so overly sexualised by young men and I think this is a law that feeds into that as well. And our feminist colleagues overseas who've taken a different approach over the years have approached me and said, we are baffled, particularly the feminists saying, we cannot understand how so-called feminist politicians in your country even remotely begin to think that this is an acceptable form of behaviour. Because in most countries now, prostitution is definitely recognised as violence towards women. And my explanation uh, I have is I just think that the the law, New Zealand has a high tolerance and a very low bar when it comes to violence against women. I mean, as we know, Marie, we've, we sit right at the top in the OECD in our rates of violence against women, domestic violence. And I just see that prostitution sits within that mulot of violence and we have an accommodation of it in a way that other countries do not tolerate it. And you're right. Our criteria in terms of a lot of OECD metrics are awful. Mm. Lowest rates mm. of reading and mathematics, for example, mm. which from my perspective, that poor education could be one of the precursors feeding into young women having to enter into an industry and trade that is so detrimental to themselves because they're, you know, they don't see any other options. I mean, all of this mm. is interconnected and this normalization, culturally, mm. we're seeing things move and change here now over the last few years. I think a lot of people are waking up, pink, pink pilling, we're calling it. They're sort of beginning to see things are seriously wrong. But these sorts of things have been going on, as you said, 20 years since the decriminalization of prostitution. And that was hailed as this great moment. Mm. I do have a question around the Prostitutes Collective because, of course, you know, their founder has now got a damehood, is that right? They've been exactly. Now, yeah, exactly. so completely adorated by the powers that be. What is their argument? What What are they saying? That How are they believing 20 years on that this is working? I think you have to ask them that. I suspect what they, they're saying is that they have more freedom to report violence to the police than they had prior to decriminalisation. And that may well be true, but of course our argument is the violence has to take place to start with. And what we're trying to do is eliminate violence and what they're trying to do is minimise violence. But once the violence has happened, I mean, the law didn't help any of those, those murdered women, but even more so, the woman is not helping the... I guess it's the toll that's been taken on uh, a lot of women on a day-to-day-to-day-to-day drip-fed basis. You're going to get a 
few women that are in the NZPC cohort by saying, yes, uh, they think it's a great model. They have fabulous clients. They're all Richard Gere and it's all pretty woman, which, of course, is just a narrative. What we would call is just um, cognitive dissonance, you know, that there is a lot of, I guess, yeah, glossing over the realities. It's not a, a happy hooker narrative for the vast majority of women and girls who will admit to being broken. A lot of them were broken before they even came into the into the trade. So where does things like gang culture fit in? And I'm not just talking Māori Polynesian gang here. I'm talking mm-hmm. also Asian organised crime. Wherever there is money to be made, yep. gangs yep. can be found. And I am assuming that they are prevalent in prostitution as they've always been. They must be making bank on this, surely. Oh, they are. And the police aren't interested uh, in investigating gangs are not on the horizons. And yet we've linked uh, uh, articles that talk about the gangs have been uh, amongst the other laws. The laws are the winners. When we look at winners, I mean, we ironically, are, you know, tongue in cheek are looking at who has stood to benefit from this law. And I can tell you who hasn't. And that's women. As far as the gangs go, uh, Wahini Tower Rising, when they put out a media release, they say that many of their own women that they support have been trafficked as children and they're too afraid to be approaching police because they've got fear of reprisals from their pimps, from gangs, from gang members, from other managers, peers and even their families. So gangs are right under the radar and as are traffickers. Now, prostitutes collective quite rightly don't want trafficking to be conflated with with prostitution itself. And I do have some sympathy for that position. However, traffic only occurs into the sex trade. So they are interconnected whether they like it or not. Now, we know even before decriminalisation that we had gangs or uh, well, people trafficked into New Zealand for the sex trade because back in 1999 and 2000, I, I was quite instrumental in bringing this to the attention of some of the media. And there were some very high profile cases. But what we've got now is immigration don't seem to have any political will and energy to follow up on gangs. And repeatedly, NZPC says there is no trafficking in New Zealand. Now, really interesting, back in 2009, we had a trafficking trafficking, uh, conference down in Wellington for three days. And of course, trafficking for immigration basically is around horticulture, fishing, other, other industries. And I've commonly put my hand up and said, well, what about the sex trade? Oh, no, there's no trafficking here. It was a very interesting occasion. A man on the second day came barreling up onto the stage. He introduced himself, Jeremy Bialetti, a barrister in Auckland. He said, I've listened to you on RNZ saying there's no traffic here and I've come to tell you that's utter BS. I am acting for three trafficked women from the Ukraine. And so this is the kind of swept under the table nobody wants to talk about. So it was interesting, his case, these women, uh, the trafficking gang was a gang from Kiev in the Ukraine. These women had been trafficked, and they they were all around the 20th age group at that time. They were trafficked to Israel. They didn't have passports, etc. So they got turfed out of Israel and they got trafficked to New Zealand. This is post-decriminalisation. Because New Zealand, we've removed that whole layer of legality over the sex trade. So New Zealand's a perfect destination for traffickers. So these three women are here. They were all being charged by immigration on passport fraud. He could not get them recognised as uh, trafficking victims. He could not believe that the courts, the judge, the just it was just right under the radar. Since then, in recent years, I've had a woman from a major city here who is a madam. She runs a brothel. 
She was telling me about the number of other trafficking gangs that are here, like women, and one of them she mentioned was Brazilians. They've set up trafficking routes from Brazil to New Zealand for the sex trade. Of course, the Asian, Asian groups have been here for many, many decades. What she said was the trafficking victims who were being forced to do, say, no condom sex, reduced rate, along with illegals that shouldn't be in the sex industry anyway because section 19 prohibits it they were undercutting them and she said my girls can't make enough profit for me I'm looking at moving my establishment over to Australia Uh, but she was not angry about decriminalization she's angry about all the illegals and the traffic people here that are undercutting their so-called profits so for immigration police NCPC to say oh no we don't have any trafficking issues is just really frustrating I'm sitting here really honestly not knowing what to say because this, like so many of these cultural issues, it goes on behind a veil of secrecy and censorship. No one wants to talk about it. I'm so glad that we're able to talk about it today. Are you familiar with the work of Maggie Oliver in the United Kingdom? No. So she is an ex-police officer and she has been trying to bust open the grooming gangs that have been yes. going on, particularly oh, yes, within yes, yes, immigrant yes. communities uh, in, in the United Kingdom. And uh, I've, I've watched a number of Maggie's interviews over the years, and I th- think to myself, gosh, I'm so thankful that that sort of thing is not happening in this country. From what you're just telling me, it's happening. And not only is it happening, but it's been sanctioned and endorsed by those in the powers that be in this country. Exactly. And, you know, the politicians don't want, won't want to revisit this uh, this law because... It's in their best interest to say, hey, we've got the best, this is what sticks in our throat. It's even touted as the best model to the rest of the world. And you've got other researchers coming to New Zealand saying, well, here you've got this amazing model and our country should follow it, et cetera. It's just absolutely astonishing. But yes, when you've given a damehood to someone who heads it up, and no disrespect to Catherine, you know, the thing about NZPC, you've got to take their hats off. They are a slick machine as far as getting out a sanitised gloss to the to, to whoever their supporters are. Um, but they're a million-dollar taxpayer-funded entity. Let's, let's not forget that. NZPC are now very much along the lines. I actually placed them in with the likes of Inside Out and they're all government endorsed, heavily government funded and have got the full might of PR machines and open and loving media in order to get their message across. Whereas someone like you, uh, I mean, when you were going to put this information out in regards to the 20 year anniversary to try and get your message across, what's the uptake like? Yeah, no mainstream media took it up, which is interesting because pretty every much pretty much every other media release, and I don't issue a lot. I want to make sure strategically that we're going to issue a media release on an issue that will get uptake. I would say because we did Ron Briley, we've done the Jazz Brothers, we've done you know all this about the the Herald, all that's taken up by media, and yet no one touched this except the alternative media yourselves and the platform. So I think I can understand also this fatigue. It's like oh. You know, not again. We, you know, we canvassed this 20 years ago. And many of us could say say the same, just put our head up and say, yeah, okay, we lost that one. But the extent of damage has just been just too horrific for women, for us as advocates to feel like we had to let this opportunity go by. But Marie, before we leave, I'm just wondering, there's just five things that are important in, in if we ever want to change the system. What research has found, interestingly enough, is most sex buyers are not that committed. They're casual buyers. And so what the argument is, is that you've got to find a way to interrupt that casual buyer, interrupt the transaction. And there are four ways of doing that. And we fail on everyone. Increase the effort 
needed to buy a woman, increase the inconvenience for buying a woman, third one is push-up price, fourth is normalise the illegality of it, and five, provide information. We've done that in the tobacco industry. Why can't we do that in the sex industry, Denise? Precisely. Well, we've you and I have got a lot to talk about, so we're definitely going to get back because I think I would like to talk about porn. As with any of these topics that we're touching here on Reality Check Radio and here on Counterculture, you're not hearing these conversations anywhere else. So if you are listening to this and you know somebody who is working within this environment, you have concerns, they're not getting the other side of the story please do share these conversations. You're able to share them. When the replays go out, they're shareables. They're easy to to send out to people. If there is a website or an initial point of contact, Denise, for you, what is that? It would just be on our website, which is www.stopdemand.org. There's no NZ, just .org, stopdemand.org. Um, and there's a contact page on there, or it's simply action at stopdemand.org if people want to email us directly. Great to hear from anybody. Thank you very much, Denise, for being so generous with your time this morning. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. I hope the conversations you've heard this morning provide you with a grounding to conduct your own courageous conversations or simply refer someone who needs help and support. And again, these are conversations heard nowhere else in New Zealand's media landscape. But we won't back down from them here at RCR. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and of course, as we do this time each week, it is time to reach out to Marty Gibson. I've had a busy weekend, so I've been a bit checked out, mm. which has been quite nice. I had my event. It was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Good morning. Again, I'm starting to increasingly look at what's not in the paper, but they're really, you know, they're really starting to put the pressure on people who think differently to what uh, the fat controllers want. Mm. As I mentioned last week, if me selecting stories out of the newspaper were a diet plan, well, this week, I tell you what, (laughs) I shed kilos this week. Probably the least amount that I've selected out of the four core papers that I look at um, as a snapshot, as well as other sources, kicking off with politics. I mean, I don't know about you, but this schoolyard shit, it's, it's getting old really fast. It was very, very scrappy in the trenches this week. Yeah, well, it's generally accepted that politicians fight because of their differences, but it's increasingly obvious to me that they fight because they're just so similar. And that's why you see you see so little actual spelling out of, of issues. 
and so much, yeah, as you say, schoolyard stuff. And I, I notice in the papers the thought police are really clamping down on um, parties that have support from anti-vaxxers. Mm. And there are some quite nasty cartoons, quite stigmatising, essentialising cartoons of people who legitimately question what's going on. I'm sure we can get into that a bit later, but, you know, some of the those stats that we've talked about before there are questions to be answered and when the media are stigmatizing people are asking them rather than confronting the issues that doesn't get me back in the herd and in the truck to the works it uh, makes me want to jump the fence and head for the bush Mm, i tell you what the back paddocks do sound pretty good right now and of course we've had david seymour up until this point who had appeared to be running a pristine campaign Somebody, and I don't know, I mean, they've been sitting on this, I am sure, but somebody who have had time on their hands has trawled through the back ends of his party list and gone through social media accounts. Honestly, I could think of. And then misquoted them. Yeah. You know, comparing the COVID response to the concentration camps. No, they didn't, you mealy-mouthed little lying liars. They said this was how it started, and they're quite right. Exactly. They're absolutely correct about that. It does not belittle the Jewish experience in World War II by pointing that out. It honors it and keeps the memory of it alive. And I mean, I'd further to that. I like to keep the memory of the Holomador alive, which far fewer people know about, which um, killed far more people Mm -hmm. um, through the politics of equity and kindness. The lack of teaching about that in high schools enabled so much of this to, to carry on. Well, and it is just that. It is that continued, subtle dehumanization of anybody that has a contrarian view against the current social and political norm. And, Mm. you know, we've seen that. They started with this prior to the pandemic. It ramped up during the pandemic. And now anybody that has a contrarian view is slapped with this. And it's just very, very sad because those three candidates, they're obviously free thinkers, critical thinkers, who were prepared to actually ask questions and call out poor behaviour. But if you go against the narrative, these parties now do not foster amongst their candidacy any deviation from doctrine and mantra, whatever it is that may be. I mean, Luxon's done the same with his people. I mean, yes, censure poor behaviour where there's poor behaviour, like whether it be threatening or or the like. But, you know, at the end of the day, censuring one of your people because they hold a differing opinion to you, one of the things that I'll give Winston, bless him, the media all jumped up and down and yelled and screamed about their belief of the poor nature of his candidates. They're still there. They haven't been turfed out and left on the side of the street. He's still moving forward with his focus of what he wants to go on. And I, I'm like, got on you on that. Can you say the same for Acton National? No. And then you've got people in Labour, Michael Woods. I mean, how many wrong steps did that man have to make before finally <laughs> uh, well, something I mean, was done about it? You know, that uh, talent pool is, is not that deep. I, I was having a look at, uh, there's an organisation called Freedom House, which is uh, basically a, an American foundation that uh, protects democracy and freedom. And, and their, their contention is that Uh, around the world, freedom has been declining for the last 15 years. And their quote was, as a lethal pandemic, economic and physical insecurity and violent conflict ravaged the world, 
is talking about in 2020, democracy's defenders sustained heavy new losses in their struggle against authoritarian foes, shifting the international balance in favour of tyranny. Incumbent leaders increasingly used force to crush opponents and settle scores, sometimes in the name of public health, while beleaguered activists lacking effective international support faced heavy jail sentences, torture or murder in many settings. These withering blows mark the 15th consecutive year of decline in global freedom. So, yeah, there's a lot of that is manifesting itself here. Mm. In terms of the political opinion pieces, they all very much had a theme, and I think we need to buy everybody a set of pearls uh, because they were clutching them for dear life. And, again, they weren't really focused on the issues. They were focused, they got down in the weeds, and they were focused on this ridiculous minutiae, which was quite frustrating. Chanel Lau was obsessed about toilets. What is it that that man in lose? <laughs> well, <laughs> let's not go there. But um, no. I took my kids to the pool at the weekend, and it is a bit of an uneasy feeling. You know, it's because I don't go into the women's changing rooms. So they go there by themselves, a, a party for a group of seven-year-old girls. Someone with a dick's got no right to be going in there and getting naked. They talk about their right to do that and not feel excluded. And, you know, Chanel was saying the reality is that those that these politicians who have put forward zero evidence to support their suggestion that transgender women uh, compromise the safety of cisgender women in public toilets and bathroom. A hint, because they don't. So it's saying when peeing with the door closed became a genuine issue is lost on me. So if you've got the door closed... Why not use the men's? What's the big deal? If we're given a choice between the rights of a person, someone who's got issues, to do what they want and the safety of young kids, I'll take the safety of young kids every single time. It is certainly something that Peters has actually jumped on this. And I think lovies like Lal actually don't realise how this is a concern for a number of families and parents out there. I'm like you, you know, I would never dream of going into the men's changing rooms. Even when my kids were little, um, we were in that family change, you know. I mean, it's just not appropriate. I, with two little boys, I just, they didn't need to, to do that. And in the family change, they went. And it's. I had. An awful experience in Gisborne Public Library once where I had to take my then two-year-old daughter in to change nappies and took her into the men's room and um, and she screamed, don't touch me, <laughs> really loud. That wasn't any fun. No. Uh, straight above that opinion piece, of course, is Heather Plessy allen and she was t- talking about some of the woes that Seymour had and, and what we alluded to in terms of his candidates on his list. This is this dehumanising that really annoys me by everybody in the media. Pro-vax, good, anti-vax, bad. And we just get again and again and again. It probably like wasn't a word with her, isn't it? It probably wasn't an accident that the media learned of axed three candidates that had, quote-unquote, weird vaccine-related issues. One compared vax mandates to the Nazi concentration camps, and we've talked about that. One linked drowning to vaccine, and one wrote a song about Jacinda Ardern throwing folks under gulags. Well, I think you'll find the drowning was somebody who had a, had a sudden medical event within direct proximity to vaccination. Hey, but let's up. not split that here. Yeah, the drowning rate went up. If you're blocking us from speculating on why, but you're not offering evidence as to why it, hmm. it might have been another thing, then that again, makes me suspicious, Heather. 
And she goes on, digging up dodgy candidates is at the bottom of a small party's list, is a stock standard political attack. But ACT left itself wide open to it. It should have learned from the experience of small parties, including itself and every other previous election, to vet new candidates thoroughly. So does vetting basically mean that you need to sign up to this prescription and you're not allowed to have a free thought of your own? Because this is what what it's beginning to sound like. Yep, that's what it is. Yep, yeah. (laughs) Indeed. The only other thing of political note, we've still got more than two months of this, Martin. I don't know how I'm going to cope. You wouldn't have seen this because it was in the post. Tosh Stewart, who is a philosopher and works as an advisor on academic policy and regulation, wrote a very, I thought, rather quirky piece in the post. And it says, don't waste your vote on a safe candidate. And it's just a really, really interesting idea around if you are a person that is inclined inclined to place a vote uh, strategically or in a different direction, What they were putting forward was looking at seats, if you were in a seat, checking where your candidates were on the party list within that seat. Uh, Consider, for example, the race in Hutt South between Ginny Anderson Labour, number 17 on the list, and Chris Bishop, national number four on the list. There is no point in voting for either of these two candidates for Hutt South because both of them will make up the list regardless of where the outcomes are. That's actually a really interesting idea. So she's actually suggesting that you have a look around for those other candidates. So if you've already got two MPs, regardless of who were the two front runners, regardless of the outcome, she says, who in Hutt South should pick? Good question. Existing voter inclinations make it tricky. Maybe the best thing is to find two diametrically opposed parties. How about the new Conservatives or the Opportunity Parties? Tories can vote for the neocons, the lefties can vote for top. We'll see who wins. Vox Populi, Vox Day, as Elon Musk would say. So I just thought it was a really interesting idea. I don't know whether you've caught it, but I've just spoken to Karina Shields, Tito Tokarau, which was was the Māori seat she was on. She's come off that role Mm. now. She said up there, the choices are basically left, left, and really left, uh, which Labour, Greens, and Māori Party, those are the choices. She's actually encouraging everybody who've remained on that seat. If you want to make your voice heard, vote legalise cannabis as a protest <laughs> vote for your candidate, because that's your only other option. I'm not sure when it came out, but there was general current psychology, which showed that left-wing extremism is linked to toxic psychopathic tendencies and narcissism, which is a new study uh, based on existing research we expected individuals with higher levels of left-wing authoritarianism to also report higher levels of narcissism. And, you know, I think when people are feeling like, you know, they just want to keep their heads down and let it all blow over, it's really worth uh, realising. I mean, the the media is grossly overestimated by the left and, and often authoritarian left, as we've discussed before. Remember during COVID, there was that Rasmussen report came out that where 55% of Democrat voters supported fines against people who refused to take the vaccines. You go down, 29% of Democratic voters said the government should take people's children from them if they refused to get the COVID-19 vaccine. That's what we're up against. And to think that there's not counterparts in New Zealand is naive to the point of it being dangerous for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. There are 
just quoting Chanel, you know, the drop of a hat. This harkens back to your interview with Josh about, Slocum. Yeah, uh, about the personality disorders. These people are picking up the ball and running with it. And, you know, I'm often horrified watching, you know, this really good content, you know, on RCR. And, and it gets listened to a lot. It doesn't get shared as much as it should. Because people, as I said, just want to keep their heads down. you got to start sharing this. you got to start talking mm. about it. It's getting late in the day. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought up Josh's interview. And that's one I think that's perfectly safe to share. Like if you're somebody who's yeah. worried about people's concerns, say, for example, on an issue like vaccination, that I don't even think we need to. I think it's, also, it's all pretty safe to share. You know, it is, we, exactly. It's deliberately so because – as I often say, you know, we can talk about what's not in the paper yeah. and we don't need conspiracy theories because the data is right there. The yep. paper's not reporting on it. And what you brought up is really interesting because one of the things that Josh touched on in our interviews, we're talking about Josh Locum. I interviewed him a few weeks back. Do look it up on the replays. So you just go to realitycheck.radio backslash replays, click on my counterculture tile and all those interviews will come up. There's four different types of narcissism. And Josh did actually mention covert narcissism. And he said, yeah. this is the one that's difficult to spot, but this is the one that quite often you will see in politics or media. It's and this is what a covert. The most dangerous one of And all. the most dangerous. Yeah. A covert narcissist is someone who craves admiration and importance, lacking empathy towards others, but may act in a different way than an overt narcissist. They may exhibit symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder, but often hide the most obvious signs of the condition. While it can be more difficult to recognize, covert narcissism can be just as destructive as the more overt narcissistic behaviors. Common narcissistic traits include having a strong sense of self-importance, experience fantasies of fame and glory, exaggerating self-abilities, craving admiration, exploiting others, and lacking empathy. In the field of psychology, behavior can be described as overt or covert. Overt behaviors of those can be easily observed, such as those of a traditional narcissist described above. Covert behaviors, however, are those that are more subtle and less obvious to others. When considering the behavior of narcissists, it might be hard to imagine how someone can be a narcissist and be inhibited by their approach and behavior. A covert narcissist may be outwardly self-effacing or withdrawn in their approach, but their end goals are always the same. Yeah. So just take it for granted. Those people are out there. They're often in the public. They're often in politics. They've got the wheel right now. They're going to drive us off a cliff. And you're in the car, New Zealanders, with healthy families and, you know, a healthy take on things. You're in the car with the serial killer, just trying to make small talk because this person seems a bit volatile and you don't want to upset them. It's time to take off your seatbelt, open the door and jump out because mm. it's never going to get easier. Only harder as the farmhouses start turning to forestry. Yeah. What's been really interesting, particularly in this last week, around just even in politics, but in things in general, has been, I think there is definitely a move among the population now that people are, those who have been trusting all along, are now no longer so. One of the little cracks of this that appeared this week was a Substack, uh, Thomas Cramner. If you don't follow his Substacks, they are incredible. He's got a, it's a pseudonym. Thomas 
does these very in-depth, well-researched, referenced articles about issues that are affecting New Zealanders today. Journalism in in the vacuum that's been created by the vacuous journalists we've got. So to anybody out there who says stations like this should not be taken seriously because we're not in the milieu of legacy media, and a lot of people who write substacks or uh, publish in alternative sources are often dismissed out of hand because they're not in the you know, the tight duopoly of media companies that we have in this country. Well, it appears that Thomas had a little bit of cut through with Shane Curry this week. Many of us in our sphere, we saw this as soon as it dropped, so we were over it pretty early. I'm pretty certain Paul Another bit it. of plagiarism um, dressed up as protecting my, my sources. <laughs> and I know that uh, we covered it really, really early. We broke the story last week pretty much as it dropped. I get the feeling that Shane Curry, something set him off because he obviously saw this. Where he well, got it from, it, I don't know. Probably I mean, originally be. linked on the BFG it, front. Yeah, yeah, originally linked on the BFG. What we're talking about is this: the piece that Premier put out this week, he dropped the bombshell of paid advertising from the government into TVNZ, but it was not overtly recognisable as paid content. Advertorial content, as Martin and I both know, has been part of the landscape within media, both print and radio, for years. I used to get ad-libs that we would have to do. When you used to have to write those advertorials, I think it was sponsored content or something used to pop up on the top of the byline or something, wasn't it? I can't remember. Something like that. Something like that. So it was very, very clear that whatever you were reading had been funded and paid for by someone else. It wasn't independent, non-commercial journalism. Well, that line apparently is being crossed, particularly when it comes to climate and climate change. With over three a three hundred thousand dollar package, where the government had paid to TVNZ, and it included a one hour climate special screened in prime time, a, a online content hosted on One News and TVNZ.co.nz, including a dedicated web page, five One News articles and stories. On their website, five one used social media posts, a breakfast integration, five interviews across a week on breakfast, including a range of EECA and climate energy experts, seven sharp interview with an EECA ambassador and a joint press release. Propaganda much? Well, yeah, and and then cue the usual, well, you know, again, pearl clutching, but outraged huffing and puffing from the media lovies. You've got old uh, stuff general counsel Genevieve O'Halloran. The integrity of our editorial content is fiercely guarded by our newsrooms and is explicitly protected in our charter. Editorial content on stuff cannot be bought or sold. We expect our journos to cover all news stories without fear or favour, whether the subject is an advertiser or the Prime Minister. Now, when was the last time you ever saw the fact that deaths from natural disasters have decreased by 90% over the past century, despite the population quadrupling? Would you kind of arrive at... That's a fact, too. That's out of a Belgian agency that measures such things. Carbon emissions have been declining for the past 50 years in US, UK or major Western countries. You don't see that. And it's more pernicious than just paid content. 
you've got the education system turning out kids that think a certain prescribed way. You've got the Public Interest Journalism Fund and New Zealand On Air only funding people that take a certain editorial direction on climate change and Māori treaty co-partnerships and New Zealand being racist. So it's it's coming from a few angles. Mm. I, th- I mean, what Genevieve clearly said, I mean, to me, as soon as I read that quote, I thought, gaslighting much? Because yeah. I think people now are beginning to see, actually, no, Genevieve, that's not true. And there's that lie of omission, isn't it? Well, you know, it's been a while since I've done a Hannah Arendt, she of the uh, banality of evil uh, quote, the result of a consistent and total substitution of lies for factual truth is not that the lie will now be accepted as truth and truth be defamed as a lie, but that the sense by which we take our bearings in the real world and the category of truth versus falsehood is among the mental means to this end is being destroyed. Mm. That's what's happening. Yeah. It is what's happening. With the climate change, we, we haven't said anything about the tragedy in Maui. You mm. know, it, it appears possible that over a thousand people, and I've seen estimates that possibly 2,000 people have lost their lives. And no show without punch. There's a um, New York Times, I think it is, article in Saturday's Weekend Herald blaming climate change. And and that was the first thing, climate change, climate change, climate change. Another great bit of content was off the Monday breakfast show with Paul Brennan, interviewed former BlackRock fund manager Ed Dowd, who's come out and, and just looking at COVID through numbers, painting a very compelling picture that all's not well. You know, there's been a lot of speculation about directed energy weapons and things like that. As, as I said, we don't need to look at that. It may have been, it may not have been, but there's plenty you can look at that's factual mm. uh, before you go there. And what's factual is bad enough. Mm. You know, the people who survived were often people who avoided a roadblock that was sending people back towards the fire. They ignored authority. When yeah. they were told by local authorities to do one thing, they followed their instincts and ignored that and survived. Yeah. He he put it down to, you know, Maui's got a, an arson problem and a meth problem, and he thinks a, a meth addict probably started the fires. But there was a fair bit of official incompetence on top of that. And, you know, there's that uneasy coincidence that through about three years ago, the police chief who was police chief in the Las, Las Vegas shooting, shooting, which was covered up, was appointed on Maui. So, you know. I mean, you're talking about climate change being responsible for the storms. I mean, the, the hurricane was about 800 kilometres away and, and the winds were only 80 to 90 miles an hour. But there's a lot of tinder dry material because there's been a lot of highly flammable grasses planted. You know, you don't need to be bleating about climate change right off the bat while the bodies are still being found. That's just ghoulish. Mm. No, it is. It is. And the, and if you haven't heard that interview with Ed Dowd, it was Monday morning with Paul again, pop to the replays page, and you'll be able to catch that there with him. It was excellent. In the Shane Curry piece, the other back half of that piece, so the front half was the Cramner, and then there was a few little fluffy bits in the middle. The second half of his Media Insider was around something that we've been talking about here, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, 
which is the digital harms discussion document. So it's essentially... conspicuous by its absence from New Zealand's mainstream media. I know. And voila. Suddenly. As, as soon as uh, submissions for this have closed... Not that they make a lick of difference to this government. They've got skips out the back of um, the beehive where I think they go straight into it. The subheading he starts with this is chilling. Media firms take aim at government review. Chilling, says TVNZ. Chilling, says RNZ. Seriously chilling, says NZ me. New Zealand's major media firms have serious concerns about the pro- proposed content regulation review, which they say threatens to sweep up journalism and broadcasting content and undermine editorial independence and freedom of the press principles. Now, I want to know where TVNZ, RNZ and NZ me were for the last two months, because we have been going on and on and on about this. I almost felt like we were a lone voice in the wilderness on this topic. All of us here on RCR have been talking about this because we could see the impact that this would have on a station like ours. Crickets. But all of a sudden they're finding it chilling. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, while they applaud the intention to crack down on social media content and bring global giants within a regulatory environment to avoid the likes of suicide videos being spread on TikTok in the March 2019 mosque shootings being broadcast on Facebook, they say that New Zealand's media businesses already operate responsibly and with regulatory oversight. We is good, Massa. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we do what we're told. Why are you coming for us when we denounced everyone else? And you see later in the piece, Warner Brothers Discovery boss Glenn Kine, who's a Kiwi, said his company's submission that sectors that were already compliant, such as traditional broadcasters, should not be subject to an increased regulatory burden, including complexity and cost of compliance. He urged internal affairs to be mindful that small platforms can cause significant harm. We know what sort of platform he's talking about, don't we? We don't. Us. Us. Internal Affairs does respond, though. And Internal Affairs told Media Insider yesterday it had received more than 20,000 pieces of feedback, although there appeared to be a, in inverted commas, high number of duplicates. It would take some time to confirm the number and type of submissions. So in other words, they're going to go through and weed out any they believe are not legitimate. Just as an example... I uh, was researching, seeing if I could find a neat summary of the various bits of evidence of irregularities in the 2020 US election. And I got through three pages. I've increasingly phrased the question more specifically about what I was looking for. I got three pages of links telling me why it was ridiculous and nonsense not a single contrarian view because I think we've already got NewsGuard working in New Zealand because remember where Jacinda's gone? She's gone to Harvard and she's, uh, you know, her, her focus is now a part of the World Economic Forum platform, which is uh, limit information. That's where they've directed her next and it's right. worked. So this morning before we came to EM, I write the Woke News of the Week, which is coming up. After this, there were a number of stories this week. I got introduced to a chat GPT summary thing just to help summarize some of these stories if I wanted to to pull things together. And I thought, oh, I'll c- give it a whirl, sure, and uh, see what it does. Now, interestingly enough, I found it a number of the sites that I find these of would be ones that would be overtly partisan. So they they look at things through a 
more uh, rightward or scathing lens. So one of the stories was in Outlet Like That, and it was discussing a librarian in Oklahoma. I won't go into it in too much detail. But the story itself, you could see there were definite sort of inflections and leanings to how they were covering the story. I put the summarizer over it to see what it came back with. The summarizer summarized it and actually put a slant very much in the opposite direction. And there were summaries in there that I went back through the original article and could find no reference to that whatsoever. Yeah, those AI chats have have already been corrupted. There's plenty of examples. Of, I, I uh, was stunned. So I did all the news stories. I thought, oh, I'm going to I'm going to apply this to all the news stories. So I did it. So I'd written my summaries, put the summarizer over it, and every single one changed it back to sort of indicate that if you questioned the current narrative, particularly around DEI, it was that was considered a negative or an opposing view. And I thought, wow. Yeah, I mean, an incredible article, but it was basically a whole lot of people mouthing off about how evil it was that New Zealand super funds were invested in Fox News, as if they were talking about, you know, investing in cluster bomb manufacturer or something like that. The standout bullshit story about Trump was Fran O'Sullivan's opinion. Fran O'Sullivan, you are a disgrace. We should really care about the potential return of Donald Trump. It's like, and, and you know, there's no mention that the guy who's there now is a dementia patient who seems to have a predilection for touching children in an uncomfortable way and is hopelessly corrupt to the point tune of, I think, $20 million while he was vice president and counting. There were, there were two articles like that. Both the Sunday Star Times, the Weekend Herald had one. And it all uses very weighted languages where a cacophony of Trump supporters bellowed support from. What we're seeing here is is the absolute weaponization of the Justice Department. There's no question about that. This guy's facing four criminal cases and two civil cases. He's facing a total of 91 charges because he questioned the election. Now, some of these trials are going to take place on Super Tuesday, which is the key date of the selection process. Is that not interfering with an election? Mm. And I mean, we um, talked about narcissism just before. If an overt narcissist, Trump is an overt narcissist. Absolutely yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. However, the threat he poses, and this is why I think they're going so hard after him, is he doesn't sit within the establishment elite. Yeah. He, he outmaneuvered them in 2016 and got elected. That, that's why they cracked down on social media, because he tweeted his way to the White House. They weren't going to let that happen again. They really, really didn't want him to get elected. Fran O'Sullivan saying, what is remarkable is that, if anything, Biden has taken much of the Trump economic agenda further, far further, and bedded in. What bullshit? He, he on, on day, well, very, very quickly, uh, one of his first acts into the um, his presidency were to rescind 15 executive orders. And what he's doing is absolutely different. He's thrown the border open. And there are about 5 million illegal uh, illegal immigrants in the U.S. at the moment. There have been over 300,000 children come, come through, and 85 of them are missing. And it's well documented that a lot of the people who are receiving these kids are criminal gangs. Russian, Balkan, Mafia, MS, whatever it is. And these children are being sold into sex slavery. 
no one knows where they are or, or having to work terrible hours and terrible conditions. Mm. And, and in that first bundle of executive orders that Biden signed off, right, when he first came in, do you remember one of them was stopping the pipeline? Yeah, stop the pipeline. So, you know, to say he continued his economic policies is it's beyond obtuse. Mm. But it's also part of that over that overriding ideological plan. I mean, Biden, so that was what, uh, 2020, the beginning of 2020, he signed that order, stop the pipeline. I mean, Jacinda, what was the first thing, what was the very first thing she did in 2017 after arriving, being the accidental prime minister, as I like to think of her, and yet we make a bold captain's call as a complete novice and we shut down all future oil and gas explorations as if, you know, we just plucked that out of the air? Yeah. This is where the absence of a proper media is, is such a dangerous, dangerous thing for democracy. Because if someone had have gotten her on TV asking her questions about the oil and gas industry, people would have quickly realized, look, she just knows nothing. She knows nothing beyond bumper stickers. And it's the same with climate change. You, you could ask her, you know, I mean, the old gotcha question is, well, what percentage of the atmosphere is, is CO2? You know, people say, oh, you know, 5%, it's 0.04%. They know nothing about it. James Shaw knows, he he doesn't have any qualifications in in climate. And yet he's going around the world destroying New Zealand's agriculture so we can be a leader, translate, again, we're with the narcissism, so he can be a leader. Mm. From the Dollar Shorten Daylight file, which we covered with Harry, and that seems to be a theme of the media, Currently, and I think it's only going to get worse the closer we get to the election. So things that, you know, many of us have been talking about in the six or so months. Stephen Joyce. Mm. Inquiry must ensure COVID-era lessons learned. Royal Commission needs to look at what could have been done better. The timing of this I found really interesting. There was good, bad and ugly in here. It was good that yeah. it was written. Good, good, bad, ugly and timid. Yes. A, a lot timid. of timid. He was a lot of timid. Yeah, I mean, to describe, he talks about, and this drives me crazy when people do it, talked about pandemic-induced staff shortages. It wasn't the pandemic. It was the government response to the perception of the pandemic. And then just below, he sort of essentially says that. The decision mm. to leave hospitals almost completely empty for long periods was appalling. Well, yeah, he talks about a whole cohort of young people less adequately prepared for life than they would have been without COVID coming along again. You know, then below he says, well, it wasn't essentially, you know, it wasn't COVID. Schools were closed at the drop of a hat for very long periods. And the tendency to close schools quickly for a variety of reasons has continued. Is that COVID, Steve? Mm. And even further, because I highlighted actually the following paragraph, as well as coping with the ongoing problems of poor school attendance and damaged tertiary sector, we're still dealing with the collateral damage in terms of the actions of some young people who were clearly disaffected and disconnected from society. There is little doubt the current crime wave is partly caused by the marginalisation of so many young people. Marginalisation how, Stephen? Because Depending on who you talk to, there are those that are say that marginalisation sits in a construct of oppressed and an oppressor, and that they are marginalised due to the colour of their skin, and therefore that this is what is required in order to take them out of marginalisation. Or are they marginalised because they 
again, because that color of their skin, they are actually told that they're part of an oppressor class. So therefore they need to conform. I mean, there's all of these nuances there that just don't get touched. And that for me was exceptionally timid. Yeah. The mentor side on young people. And again, you know, all you timid people sitting at home. Yes, you. This is serious. If you think about how what's happening with your kids at school, you instinctively equate it with what happened with you. It's not the same. It's really changed. No, it's not the same. If you started with your, I mean, your kids are a bit younger than mine, but we're definitely starting to have those conversations, those teenage conversations, particularly the youngest one. Yeah, I try to immunize my children by priming them with some counterfactuals. In the same way as I have started transitioning them early by when they say they want to get married and have kids, I'll uh, run over um, the need to uh, avoid porn, drugs, uh, to great gain skills that are going to enable you to support a family, all that sort of thing, mm. uh, to resist the uh, pressure to get into a relationship before the age of 18, but rather work on yourself to uh, improve the caliber of the people who are willing to marry you. So, yeah, the transition process, I think, uh, needs to start going both ways. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up both ways because we, we're, we're at what I call the barn door stage of the discussions with the boys, and it's a lot about if a topic comes up and, you know, I say to them, right, well, let's look at both sides of the barn door here. And we, between both Mr. Marie and myself, we have these conversations with the boys and we get them, if they hold one position, it's like, okay, well, you need to swing that barn door and, and look like look at the position from the other side. Or if you're wanting to apply your position, what effect does that have further down the, the line? Because the one thing that we certainly know, regardless of who is in governance, the road to hell is paved with a lot of really good intentions, but man, is that road gilded and is it paved and it is gone to hell. Yeah. So further on in the piece from Joyce, talking about the post-COVID hangover, I would like to add a few extra items to this huge post-COVID hangover. The simultaneous increase of the number of conspiracy theorists and the desire of governments to label and crack down on disinformation are both the children of lockdowns and vaccine mandates abate abetted by social media. If you demonize people for their understandable, if possibly irrational, fears, then you're going to get more people placing themselves on the opposite side of what they can see as an overbearing authority. And if you get too used to having your way with the one source of truth, then you come to see any disagreement as disinformation. Yeah. What I don't get is why people aren't talking about those recent stats that have come out showing those whopping increases since 2018-19 in death rates, 14% up, right? Uh, live births down 28% and disability up 37.5%. Uh, Again, getting back to that interview on Paul Brennan's show with former BlackRock fund manager, Ed uh, Dowd. You know, so New Zealand's disabilities up for working age people, 37.5. That uh, is 14% of the workforce, apparently now. In the US, it's 36%. So that's a whopping increase, but it's very close to New Zealand's. So what's going on with working age folks? And more to the point, as I said, you people sitting at home, 
Why is that not in the paper? That, that's, that's not a conspiracy theory. Those are numbers out of New Zealand's Ministry for Stats. How come no one's talking about it? That's a huge news story. The live births down 28%. That's on, on top of them falling before the pandemic from replacement to, to well below replacement at 1.6 live births per um, woman from 2.1, I think. Where are they now? No. And I mean, look at the South Koreans. I think, did I hear something that the South Koreans were below one? Yeah. I would be surprised if New Zealand wasn't hovering around one. And what's Chris Hipkins talking about? Protecting women's rights to abortion? That's their priority? Sure. Talk about abortion, but maybe talk about how we're going extinct as well. Well, not only that, protecting New Zealanders' rights to abortion, they don't talk about how late-term abortions... They passed well, that under that urgency. Late term abortions. I've I've watched three babies in person being born, my children, and each of them were right there at the outset. I I, you know, the whole cluster of cells uh, thing. So you know, late term up to up to birth passed under urgency during the first lockdown. And, and there's this ghoulish photo of female Green MPs celebrating it, and they they look like. They're just smiling in that ghoulish way that people smile with dead animals with their tongues hanging out. You know, that's sort of where it doesn't seem to match. You think, oh, that poor dears. Grant, I mean, what did he announce? $4 billion to Trump. $4 billion over four years. Well, Andrew Kelleher, uh, who's a financial guru, he did a bit of a tot-up of what the uh, total fiscal spend was and uh, over the same period. 578 billion. So, you know, my rudimentary maths, 578 billion, 4 billion saved. Well, that's less than 1%. Um, oh, it's, it's horrifying. And it's it's mostly borrowed. Well, you know, not mostly borrowed, but, you know, a good part of it's borrowed. Oh, right. What else have you got on your list, Mr. Mister? Fran O'Sullivan article I was lambasting. You know, this is the same Fran Sullivan who mentioned that. Hipkins was going to the summer Davos, but didn't mention that he and Jacinda Ardern were young global leaders. You know, the head of TVNZ, Simon Power, who got paid by the government to talk about climate change, WF, young global leader. The the fact it's it's constantly um, absent from the the national dialogue is again should concern people a lot more than it does. But, yeah, I think the BRICS, you know, you're starting to see a bit of mentioning around the edges of, of the BRICS thing. And in the world section, there was a, a story how Saudi Arabia, of, of uh, this weekend held, how Saudi Arabia and UAE are positioning themselves for power. You know, I've talked before about Unwin's work, talking about the collapse of civilizations and my belief that we're in the midst of that. And... Uh, it happens, this is from studying about 84 collapsed civilizations, he said one of the uh, in constant features of such collapses, they happen like clockwork three generations after the societal stigma comes off premarital or extramarital sex. So here we are, right, from the 60s. And inevitably, the country that takes over the collapsed civilization is one with more temperance, let's say. 
And so here we have the Saudi Arabia uh, and BRICS countries basically poised to to take over. They're, they're proposing new currencies, new gold-backed currencies. And there's a quote here from Ali Shib, uh, Shihabi, a Saudi commentator close to the royal court, says that while there could be adjustments if the U.S. agrees to a security alliance with the kingdom, Riyadh would resist pressures to dilute ties with China. There's no going back. Saudi Arabia will not give up the bridges it has built with the global south, with Russia or China, because those are integral to the functioning of the Saudi economy and to the kingdom's long-term market needs, he says. The Saudi leadership is much more independently minded. Ten years ago, there was a whole generation that was just instinctively more deferential to American requests. It's time to start seeing things through that lens. And there are stories of African nations turning down American aid because it, it's basically um, social justice programs. And they don't want that. No. They don't want the trans thing. They don't want normalization of homosexuality, rightly or wrongly. And, you know, I'm agnostic about that, but I, I do think that there are um, issues with it that it's not politic to discuss. Mm. Um, and, you know, they're being offered military aid from Russia and China. So rather than, you know, they see it as America's offering them the opportunity to get weak, and Russia and China are op offering them the opportunity to get stronger, and they're taking stronger. Yeah, we have to start thinking, well, you know, where's New Zealand placed in this? And obviously we are a lot more sidled up to China than um, other Western nations. But, um, yeah, well, this, this, yeah. Is gonna play, this, this is going to play out a lot more in coming years. So an article that just dropped a couple of days ago by Mick Hall. Now, Mick Hall was the Radio New Zealand journalist. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that was... Lambasted um, again. Yes, claiming... Oh, Radio claiming, New Zealand. Yeah, claiming that he altered stories. He broke with the narrative of the collapsing empire. And, of course, that has now been completely debunked, but, again, not by RNZ. Well, he got picked up no, by not, Consortium not, News. They made it... Been confirmed. Yes, and they consor Consortium News picked him up. He's just dropped his a big article in Consortium News. The headline is, is unease over New Zealand's overtures to Pacific and uh, US and Pacific. New security state documents show Wellington aligning its military with the rules-based international order, shocker, while preparing Kiwis for war with key trading partner China, writes Mick Hall. Now, it's a long read. And he's really gone into depth here, and I think he's enjoyed. You can see the relish that he's had to have full editorial freedom. Well, to imagine how free he thinks being able to tell the truth. I saw yeah. an interview, just a, a web podcast kind of interview with Duncan Garner. He was a bit boozed and just looked terrible. And I bet a lot of media lovies are starting to um, stretch from a bottle of wine a day to two or three these days because it lying is it's hard on you hard on your soul mm. yeah he's so right and actually we'll reiterate the offer we made last week if any of you want to reach out to to marty he's a safe space people give him a holler inbox realitycheck.radio yeah it's your kids are going to have to live with this if you've got kids no i, I just really would recommend uh having a look at that 
I think it's uh, it's a great article. It's it's nice to see him being able to, as you say, write the truth and actually get another view out there that you will never see on the legacy media here. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the other is little... often have to do it as a hobby rather than a job. <laughs> but you know, go work in a pack house and and tell the truth as a hobby. It's it's far better than uh, lying for a living. So true. So true. Liam Lawson. Did you see he had his first outing the Formula One over the weekend? Dutch oh, Grand Prix? Yeah, caned it. Well, he got 13th, didn't he? 13th? And, well, and considering uh, apparently the track was a, a nightmare. And, uh, yeah, so, so you mentioned it, you know, the other week. We're doing some pretty great things on... Underappreciated um, motorsports um, stars. Yeah, considering that, well, we won't talk about the rugby, so... Because it was a bit of a disaster, and oh, and of course the Rugby World Cup. I've that's completely passed me by. I'm a, traditionally been a huge fan of the Rugby World Cup, but this year it's completely snuck up on me out of the blue. So there you go. That's what happens when you're busy staying out of mischief. I probably don't pay as much attention to sports ball as uh, is regarded as normal, but you know, bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. Right. Well, we're going to get together you and I again on uh, Friday. For political agenda, so that's going to be a bit of fun. I'm going to have to get a bit of reading up about a bit behind on the reading. Pleasure as always. And uh, how's the column going? Good. Check it out. I, I, the last couple of columns, the last few columns, are basically setting out a few different ways of looking at the world. And the latest one is the difference between, well, I guess the similarity between Western medicine and and Western democracy, and what a more eastward way of looking might might be. Very good. And of course, realitycheck.radio. And you can find that, I think it's under blog, is it not? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. under blog. We'll talk in a couple of days and we'll do, of course, this all over again next Wednesday. Remember, more still here to come on Counterculture, including the Woke News of the Week up next here with RCR. Awesome. Have a great week, everyone. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Time to head overseas for the woke news of the week. Oklahoma school receives bomb threat over librarian pushing woke agenda. A Tulsa elementary school has received bomb threats after popular account libs of TikTok reposted a librarian's video about pushing a woke agenda. Ellen Ochoa Elementary librarian Kirby McKenzie posted a TikTok video last week with a graphic saying, POV, Teachers in your state are dropping like flies, but you are still not quite finished pushing your woke agenda at the public school. The video was quickly picked up by the libs of TikTok and reposted to Twitter with the caption, this is an elementary school librarian in Oklahoma. She pushes a woke agenda with the emphasis on social justice. The reposting video garnered 2.6 million views, whilst the original was vastly less. Shortly after the reposting, Alan and Elementary began receiving bomb threats. The school delayed the start of school and brought in bomb-sniffing dogs to scope out the school grounds. Two threats were received in two days. Police investigated. It's become a kind of cry-wolf situation now, stated the police chief. The bottom line is it's not allowable. That is not going to be okay, and we will prosecute, and we are going to find this person and put them in jail, he stated. Union Public Schools Chief Communications Officer Chris Payne said McKenzie's original message had been misconstrued and she had no evil agenda. 
There's none of that, just very misconstrued, he said. She is one of our longtime librarians, highly respected, and has done a lot of really good work at Union. We stand behind Kirby. She's a terrific employee, the librarian said of the school this week. Is Disney still the happiest place on earth? Disney has decided to make changes to its Peter Pan attraction at its theme parks. This decision comes after a period of controversy and debate surrounding Disney's approach to its content and values. Audiences have been critical of Disney's changes to fit into the DEI and ESG agendas. Earlier this month, Disney announced it's continuing to lose massive sums of money, $512 million in the most recent quarter, on its streaming service Disney+. Plus. Disney stock is down 56% from their March 2021 high, and their one revenue-producing asset, their amusement parks, saw a downturn in attendance this summer. Yet they still push on with changes, including the description of the upcoming ride called Peter Pan's Neverland Adventure. Instead of using the term lost boys, Disney now uses lost kids to be more inclusive. It's not clear if this change will affect the characters' identities or if it's just a way to make everyone feel included. The announcement is part of a bigger expansion at Tokyo's Disney Sea called Fantasy Springs. It will have a new attractions based on movies like Frozen, Tangled, and Tinkerbell. This change in the Peter Pan ride is in line with Disney's efforts to update its classic content to reflect more modern values. The debate about these changes has been ongoing, with some people supporting Disney's moves and many expressing concerns. This is all happening while Disney continues to navigate discussions about its content and its place in entertainment. Now from across the ditch, just say no. The Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, in Sydney featured prominent figures like Tony Abbott, Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price opposing the Indigenous voice to Parliament. The event showcased a stance against the advisory body, framing it as a battle between Conservatives and Progressives for political influence in Australia. Price, a coalition senator and leader of the No campaign, encouraged attendees to reject the referendum as a way to oppose what she called woke insidious cancel culture and city elites. The conference saw speakers like Alan Jones and Tony Abbott expressing strong opposition to the Indigenous voice, with Abbott claiming that current Aboriginal Australians are not victims and non-Aboriginal Australians are not oppressors. However, the events focused on defeating the referendum contrasted with the growing number of undecided voters. While the No campaign made efforts to undermine the Indigenous voice, there remain challenges in effectively explaining the concept and rallying public support. Trigger warning. New Neighbours has gone woke. The Australian soap opera Neighbours is making a comeback with a diverse cast that couldn't be further removed from its original lineup. The show, known for launching the careers of Kylie Minogue and Margot Robbie, is introducing a range of characters, including a biracial gay couple with children, a transgender character, and a male gay couple and a lesbian singleton. The soap, which was axed last year, is returning with a more inclusive focus. Among the new characters are the Varga Murphy family with two mums, Kara and Remy, who have two sons. The show's decision to diversify its cast has surprised insiders with speculations that it might have been aimed at gaining popularity for the American market. The revamped Neighbours is set to return September 18. Let's watch the space and see how it would be received by viewing audiences. 
Would you like to be a part of reviving Honest Media? At RCR, we're on a mission to do just that. We report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan says, it's a good mission. Now there's an easy way to support RCR and at the same time receive some amazing benefits. Our Foundation Membership Club is here. As a member, you'll enjoy a host of exclusive benefits, including a daily bite-sized news digest, a backstage pass to RCR, and discounted merchandise. Find out all you need to know about our Foundation membership now at www.realitycheck.radio. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep the feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text, send us your comments to 2057. If you want to support the work we do here at RCR, we're funded by the people for the people. You can join our Foundation Members Club or simply make a one-off donation. All details can be found at realitycheck.radio. Peter Williams is here next with more great classic music and commentary, but time for one more song from me. With his version of an Elvis classic, turn up the volume for this country legend Travis Tritt and Burning Love. Thank you for listening, and I will catch you all next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Radio.